This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. I'm a simple man making my way through the galaxy, like my father before me. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we talk about film series one movie at a time. I'm your host, Gabe Green, and I am here with my uh, co-host, James Hamrick. What's going on? Nothing much. Looking forward. This is the the first time in a bit it feels like we've recorded a subsequent episode, like at a yes. a decent amount of time after the last one. Yeah, last time was about, a, I think, roughly a month in between, and I hope that's in the past now. Um, so we are right now catching up with various uh, franchises that had had installments while we were in the Terminator series. And currently we are in Star Wars doing The Mandalorian Season 2. Last episode we talked about uh, chapters, I don't remember what that would have been, uh, 9 through 12, I think. And now we're talking about the final four chapters. But before we get into that, I want to ask you guys, uh, if you enjoy the show, to please take a moment to head over to iTunes, leave us a rating and five-star review, and we would very much appreciate it, and um, subscribe while you're at it. And uh, so without further ado, let's just dive right into um, our discussion on this show. We uh, we talked about all the whatever production news we had last week, so let's just dive directly into um, the first of the four episodes we'll be talking about. Oh, I'm really mad at myself that I forgot to add. I forgot to. I listened to the soundtrack for this show last last episode, but I forgot to add it to the notes so we didn't talk about it. And then this weekend, I forgot to listen to <laughs> to the second half of the soundtrack. <laughs> so uh, not, not a lot of music discussion, despite uh, me really wanting to, because uh, Ludwig Gordonson's music is incredible. But uh, I'm angry at myself because we did not did not get to listen to it. So sad. Just know it's great. Yes, and it will be mentioned a couple times because it's just awesome within the episode as well. Uh, so the first up is The Jedi. This one is written and directed by Dave Filoni. Uh, it's shot by Baz Idowin. That sounds like a Star Wars name. Baz Idowin? Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Um, it features the uh, triumphant live-action debut of one of Star Wars' most beloved characters with Ahsoka Tano, uh, played by the wonderful Rosario Dawson. Which is this was something that had been fan cast for years. Like this, what her name was one that kind of floated around in the fandom. Um, and so when when it, when the casting leaked and they didn't confirm it, it was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. It also featured actress uh, and stuntwoman Diana Lee Inosanto as Morgan Elsbeth, the magistrate, and Michael Bean as her right hand man Lang. And we just talked about him in the Terminator series. Hey. Also in a cameo as the deposed city ma uh, magistrate is a Wing T. Chow, uh, who is an architect and former Disney Imagineer who did a lot of work on the Disney parks and resorts for decades. Uh, he's apparently a really big figure within Disney, and he's just as a cameo here. <laughs> so the synopsis for this episode. Acting on Bo-Katan's tip, Mando flies to the planet of Corvus in search of Ahsoka Tano in hopes that she will train Baby Yoda. Once there, he seeks out the local magistrate, who hires him to hunt down the Jedi that has been attacking her. Mando continues his search, which quickly leads to a run-in with Ahsoka. After a tense altercation, the adorableness of Baby Yoda wins Ahsoka over, and they come to a truce. Ahsoka communes with Baby Yoda and discovers his past and his name, but she refuses to train him. Uh, after some cajoling from Mando, she agrees to help in return for his help in liberating the city of Caladon, uh, Caladan, 
uh, from the tyrannies of the magistrate. They launch an attack and are victorious, freeing the city and winning a really cool Beskar spear to boot. Ahsoka then sends Mando on yet another quest um, to an ancient Jedi temple where Baby Yoda can call out to any other remaining Jedi for guidance. Um, she kind of lied to him. Like, she totally said, yeah, I'll, I'll train him if you help me. Then I, nope. Gotta go somewhere else. That's how they get you. Freaking Jedi. All right, James, what do you think of this? Uh, how was how was ah- Ahsoka's debut? Did it live up to your expectations? You know, the what's crazy is, so Rosario Dawson was like, like you said, it was a fan cast. Everybody was behind it. I think because I, I just, the Clone Wars is just so near and dear to me. Uh, I'm I'm really like precious with certain characters and everything that I kind of identify them with, uh, and one of those things is voice. And I I just think across the Clone Wars, Ashley Eckstein is just so phenomenal with that character, uh, and she's so integral to so much of what I love about her. Uh, like I mean, it is her you know it's a, it's animation, but it's her performance. You know, it's it, the writing isn't the only thing I love about her. It is the performance. And so whether it's Rosario Dawson or anybody, I was a little bit hesitant to the entire, just the idea of live action translation. If it wasn't going to be Axteen or Eckstein after like some acting, like, so, you know, to, like I was hoping that she would familiarize herself with live action acting and, take on the role and this and that. So I, I don't know. I went into it. The, the, the cards were stacked against uh, Dawson, I guess is all I'm trying to say. Um, but I really liked it. I, I like her performance a lot. I, I don't think I have to make these leaps in my mind to convince myself that this is the same character that I have all of this history and investment in already. Um, I think there, there are definitely some, these uh, Ahsoka, qualities that i think rosario is really able to to embody like she carries herself well she's obviously an amazing actress so so yeah like just on the subject of of ahsoka i i was genuinely happy with with how how willing i ended up being to to receive this interpretation of the character yeah it it took a bit for me to fully get on board like she looks like Ahsoka, but I'm not quite feeling it. And there was a particular line reading that kind of won me over. Is after they meet, they have the little fight. He's like, "No, we need to talk." And she she pauses. I hope it's about him. And something about that line reading just reads uh, just so Ahsoka for me. Um, it kind of won me over to this iteration. Um, but yeah, I, I do have some questions about where the character is and like uh, you know in her journey and like what 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 exactly she's doing but we'll get into that later um the big thing about this episode aside from ahsoka i think is just the atmosphere and the setting um i will have quite a few criticisms for feloni's direction but i think the one thing that he he has in insane amounts is just vision um the the planet he created this like green smoky thing with the bur- dead trees everywhere. Um, and just these, the, these really gorgeous wide shots of the dead forest with these enormous, um, 
beast in the background and the way the smoke and fog kind of muffles the sound and just the various sounds of the forest it's a very it's a very immersive and oppressive atmosphere he's created here um that just just sticks with you the entire episode it, it, make, it makes it stand out in the series just for how just how well he brought that to life yeah i love the, like the shot where he's coming in the land and you're just passing over the the rooftops of the of this city it's a you know i mean it's star wars how many planets and cities have we seen but it finds a way to feel like pretty visually distinct both between the architecture and like that that kind of green mist that just hangs in the air the 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 place just feels dead and gross like when he gets out the sound design in this episode is fantastic like he gets out and you've got the images of these massive monsters walking through the trees and there's just something dead sounding in the air like mm-hmm. there's there's noise it's not as if it's like like any like just dead silence or anything but you don't hear like the sound of of nature you, you, it just it sounds like just this dead void and so i don't know it's it's weird but it's it, it is, really is like really effective in creating this oppressive atmosphere and, and vibe and then we get that contrast is when we go into the center of the city and the magistrate has this green garden sanctuary in there and it's, it's like you almost like you it just kind of hits you just how oppressive this episode has been when you finally see a little bit of green like oh wow um you know <laughs> this is something very if it's just it's just a, a really interesting uh juxt- juxtaposition uh between the two and there there are some really awesome wide shots in here just when he he'll frame like two characters standing away you know far away from each other these like iconic samurai shots it was funny like in in just watching the episode you really feel the kind of the kurosawa samurai influences and when i was watching the uh, disney gallery pretty much every other word said by anyone on there was samurai like they, they were they were really going for that feeling and i mean they, they fully recreate you know the the iconic yojimbo shot in the street yeah, and just where she's like she's standing framed against the gate. There's shots of Amanda like that, where you have the guys in the wall, them standing at the bottom. There's just a lot of really striking wide images he has here, which brings me to a, a criticism: is another thing they took from samurai movies is people standing stoically staring off into the distance. <laughs> There's a lot of that in yeah, this episode, where just two people they're standing. And they're kind of having a conversation, but neither one's looking at the other. They're kind of staring off into the distance, and there's these long pauses between each line. And it, it I don't think uh, Filoni is at the point as the director of actors to where he can make that feel natural. <laughs> so <laughs> there's a, quite a few awkward scenes where, with you know, di- with very long pauses between dialogue as people just stand there looking epic and staring. It, it got kind of noticeable. Not, he's not Kurosawa or Leone just yet, and you can feel that. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk more about Ahsoka. Um, so, where do you think she is, like in her journey as a character? Because, like, when we meet her, you know, like she's just full on killing people. Like, and I know, like Jedi do kill. That is a thing that that does happen, but. Generally, you feel they kind of avoid it, and if they can, they'll, they'll knock someone out or throw them against a wall. 
she doesn't bother with that here. <laughs> and it honestly felt kind of weird. Um, like she's got a lot of like pent up fear and anger in her. When we left her in Rebels, like she's like, she's like freaking Gandalf the White. She's got the white robe. Like she looks like this, a figure that has like ascended. Like she has become the Jedi. And, and going back into season seven of Rebels, which was made, of Clone Wars, which was made after Rebels, in the um, the Martinez sister arc, it feels like where she's, she goes into this really deep internal struggle about what it means to be a Jedi. She feels the Jedi Order have, have you know forgotten the little people. Um, they've kind of forgotten their purpose. And by the end of it, it's like she kind of finds herself as like the ideal of a Jedi, where you know, forsaking the politics and the power games and all the stuff with the Republic and just, you know, going out and helping people. Like, it, it felt like Filoni was kind of leveraging her to be the, the you know, the idealized Jedi. So to come to here and have her, you know, be you know, very seemingly very angry and violent and, uh, and, and fearful in, you know, in her interactions with Mando and uh, Grogu, oh, it just, it, it, kind of hit me wrong it, and it was it i don't know i don't know if irritated me is the right word but it kind, of, it kind of worried me almost like i don't know what are you doing with this I, i've i feel very protective of this character one of my favorite star wars characters I'm, i don't know did you feel anything like that at all did it strike you as did her character characterization here strike you as odd or did it just feel right at home for you i mean it wasn't right at home but not in a way that bothered me because uh Initially, I I was kind of, and well, at first with the, with the opening action scene and she's killing everybody, I I didn't really read too much into that because I was just thinking like, if I'm a director and I'm working like I'm getting to put Ahsoka on on the screen in live action the first time, like if if I were doing that, man, she'd be cutting people down. <laughs> like it's just like you you've got this amazing character and you you just want to see her go to town. Um, so I was like, ah, oh, she's just it's. It's it's Ahsoka live action. They they knew that, you know, you got to have her, you know, you know, wrecking shop in the first scene, um, but it was kind of like this, this very mission oriented vibe from her before I was like, okay, they're they're doing something with her right now. Um, it was this very like I I've, I've got this thing that I've got to do, and that is what matters to me right now. Um, and by the end, you know, when we get the Thrawn reveal, I was like, okay, they're clearly setting something up. And then, you know, with the, the Ahsoka show announced, uh, I felt far less worried because to me, you know, it's not as if writers changed. You know, Filoni has written this character start to finish, uh, including, you know, Mando. And so I, I trust... You know he hasn't let me down when it comes to this character, so I, I trust, trust him too. But I'm but I'm worried. <laughs> well, I just I think with the big reveal at the end, and she, like she's very clearly after something. You know, she's after she's got to find Thrawn for reasons that I'm sure we're gonna find out. And with the show announced for her, it feels like any sort of offness that is there with her is intentional. You know, and they're they're setting her up for something in this show, uh, and I'm, I mean I'm looking forward to seeing whatever story he's ready to tell with her. As you mentioned, that it's still the same writer with the character. So that brings me to another kind of 
very large question mark for how she, how she characterized. And that is like, what is the, what the heck is with her? The reason she gives for not uh, training baby Yoda. Um, yeah. I, this is the one area where I'm feeling uneasy. Yeah. So the line she gives is I cannot train him. His attachment makes him vulnerable to his fears, his anger. I've seen what such feelings can do to a fully trained Jedi Knight to the best of us. I will not start this child down, down that path. Best to let his abilities fade. This brings up a massive question of the entire the entire philosophy of Star Wars in regards to the Jedi and their practices. Like in, in Empire Strikes Back, he very much downplays the val- you know the value of these relationships, these friendships. Same in Return of the Jedi, like. Doesn't matter. You have to do what you have. You do what you have to do. Then we go to the prequels, and they're very. The Jedi are completely, they completely forbidding any kind of relationship, whether familial, familial or romantic. Any kind of attachments are you know, expressly forbidden. And my read on the prequels, on the Clone Wars, on Rebels, on the sequels, it has all seemed to very explicitly be saying that that, and not to mention Return of the Jedi. Um, explicitly saying that this philosophy that the Jedi have was deeply flawed and created damage to people and was part of the reason, you know, part of the the reasons that led Anakin to his fall and the fall of the Jedi. Um, And that seemed like going back to Return of the Jedi where Luke rejects Yoda's, Yoda's, Yoda's up. Yoda says, you know, he can't be redeemed. He, He must be killed. And, Luke saves Vader, uh, you know, through familial love. You go to the prequels, you know, uh, I guess you could, if you only had the prequels, you could kind of twist it to say maybe it was, maybe the Jedi are right and Anakin's attachments led him to the dark side, but also, but, but then once you get into the Clone Wars and the way that, that portrays the attachments and it seems to put much more of the fault on the Jedi. And then you get to the rebels, which we have a Jedi family, like they're the 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 ghost crew, they're a family, and they have a you know a, a a great bond between each other, and that makes them stronger. And never once is it criticized or even insinuated that that's a problem. And you know that it it makes Kanan and Ezra you know into better people, and ultimately they become, at least in my mind, the probably the closest to to just perfect Jedi we ever seen. Um, and much of that is through these relationships they had with each other. The last Jedi. So like that's, and then you go to, uh, the sequels and, you know, Ray seems, you know, very had to have these very close attachments and friendships and even almost familial relationships, uh, with, you know, Finn and Poe and, uh, Leia and Luke. So, and, and you know, she, yeah, she takes the last name of her mentor yeah. as her own. Like she embraces it as, as a family. Yeah, so now to go and have Ahsoka, who was very much moving beyond many of the flawed Jedi teachings, and Ahsoka, who has pretty much been, you know, through Rebels, through a lot of Clone Wars and most of Rebels, was the voice of truth, essentially. Like, she was generally the one speaking the themes and asking the questions and finding, you know, finding the truth. To have her going back and just spouting you know, this cold Jedi doctrine that seemed to have been debunked for most of the series is just strange. And obviously Luke comes and trains Grogu. So I guess we're not, 
we're not supposed to understand that she is speaking total truth, but the show That's... also doesn't seem to downplay her fears. It seems to give credence to them. Yeah, so I It's odd. I had I was especially worried in the episode and then you know, he he is able to send him away to Luke. What I'm hoping for is that she is not speaking on behalf of Star Wars, you know. Yeah. Um, and that because we've already sensed this idea of, you know, she she does seem angrier than typical. She is so mission oriented right now in a way that we typically don't see. I'm hoping that this is being said from a place of fear, you know, that something is going on and it's going to be expounded upon in the upcoming show in a way that makes this work. And I'm, I'm not convinced that that's not going to be the case. You know, I, I think, like I said, it's all of all of these things, you know, I, I think most of these ideas we're talking about are in the prequels. But if there were doubt, you know, we, we point to the Clone Wars and we point to Rebels. And I mean, that's full. It's these aren't like little bitty like, well, we're kind of extrapolating what we want from this. Like, it feels like Filoni is often making these declarative thematic statements. And I'm hoping that that, that is the case. Like, that everything that I've loved about what he's been saying has been entirely intentional on his part. And he knows what he's saying with Ahsoka here. And that it, that it too, is intentional. And that it's for a reason that he's going to, you know work through in the in the upcoming show yeah because like what is star wars about if not friendship and family <laughs> like explicit familial themes yeah and and the strong you know deep loving friendship it, it's i don't know like i, I it, it can be fixed it, it can be fixed and i tend to think that it will but it it definitely <laughs> threw up a huge red flag but back to some positives i it's we we talked about we're always talking about how Favreau's episodes they seem so stripped down his writing is so sparse and expositional. Every time another writer comes on, which is very rare, I kind of breathe a sigh of relief because oh look, characters are talking, um, and I really love everything between Ahsoka and uh, Mando and Grogu, because um, there's a lot of just quiet in this episode. Just like a long scene of Ahsoka just staring at Baby Yoda and, you know, he's making faces and noises and just it's there's a kind of a contemplative just calmness about it that I really like that just is pretty rare in this show. And I think one of my favorite scenes was the um was the I guess the, the quote unquote training scene where um she's testing him with the rock and. And it just it just goes on. It is pretty. It's a very long uh, dialogue scene by by the standards of this show, where she, she's doing it with him and he won't do it. So she calls Mando over, um, and he he does it. And she's just kind of watching. Like it's a, a, it's so much of it is just like reaction shots and phys and body language. It's it's you know I, I have a lot of issues with how he Filoni directs stuff, but I think this sequence in particular was just really well put together. Yeah, <laughs> I mean I. Just completely agree with all of that. Uh, you know, like like you would say, it's it feels like for for the episodes written for him, every line is written for the sake of pushing the plot a little bit 
forward, you know? Favreau? Yeah. And so to have Filoni, who's just such an experienced writer within, especially within this universe at this point. And <laughs> I feel like I spend most of, I'm spending so much of this episode just gushing about the Clone Wars. But, you know, like that, so many episodes and arcs in that series is is non-momentous, you know? It, there's so many just, we're sitting in rooms and we're talking or, uh, like, we're arguing about, like, Umbara, we're just constantly arguing about ethics and stuff. Like, it's it's just, he loves wrestling through ideas. I think that that's what I love about Filoni is he just, he loves ideas and he wants characters to argue back and forth about ideas, uh, and he fully embraces like the politics and stuff of of the series, and so here, like when he gets Mando and Ahsoka, because they are different kinds of people, he just lets them talk to each other and you know kind of explores their differences in cool ways, and you know like maybe the plot <laughs> where's you know nothing's gonna happen until tomorrow, and so we've got all of now to talk and so instead of cutting to the morning where we go we just we let's shoot that scene where they sit and talk and and it's just it feels cool you know maybe in a, in another series it'd be like yeah this is just what scenes are supposed to be like but here it's because the show is so just kind of like breakneck it is cool to have these extended scenes of dialogue where we just get to feel out dynamics and and get a sense for you know, where these characters are. Mm -hmm. There's just a lot of little moments I love. Um, you know, I want to see if you listen to you. That would be a first. I like firsts. Good or bad, they're always memorable, which is another line in delivery that really felt like Ahsoka. And he's like, all right, kid. And she leans into his ear and smiles. Grogu. <laughs> and uh, the way, um, it's the cutest thing I have ever seen. Whenever Mando says his name, he just kind of perks up like a puppy. And <laughs> I love that. I, I can't. It's too much. Uh, and uh, using the me the metal ball instead of the uh, instead of the rock, it's just just the the character connections and just how happy and proud Mando is when he takes it and he's just like cheering him on and good just job jumping yeah. around. It's so it's he's so proud. He's just a good dad. I love it. You, you really get you we start to get the sense of their father-son dynamic a lot with the you know the the wire scene previously but just watching how like how concerned he genuinely is and how much joy he takes in these kind of like these what are really like these milestone moments for a parent is just it's sweet it's so good they're you know, they're making us love it so they can break our hearts next episode um so uh, over to some negatives i'm I still think Filoni has a lot of weaknesses as a director. There's there's one thing he does a lot, which is like the entire episode feels like it's shot from waist level. Maybe maybe that was part of the samurai thing. And it's something about the darkness. It makes the um the walls of the volume a little more apparent. I noticed this back in um the episode Sanctuary from season one, and there were several times in this in this episode where like you could clearly spot. Like there's a like a slight difference in the quality of color and light between the characters and the wall, or just like where you shot of the ground and you can completely see the, where the set butts up against the volume wall. Like, like, he, like he just kind of 
just the way he shot some of this it just you can see the the edges of the stage which is never something you want you know you know in a, in a show like this um that, that is something that i definitely noticed uh there are and, and it's there are moments where I especially notice it in this, but it's also at various points in this show, like in this one where they're around the fire. I feel like, and and this goes even beyond just like lighting and and grading and stuff. And it's sometimes it feels like it's just it's uh like set design choices, but you you can kind of intuitively pick up on like these this is the set these are the props this is where like the volume extension starts you you feel like i said it's almost like it's this intuitive thing like you feel what is real and what isn't by whether it is by lighting and grading or just by you know prop placement and stuff Mm -hmm. um i actually love this episode it doesn't sound like it because i have another complaint uh and I, i still think his his sense of pacing is off and that's like really apparent in the action scenes. Like, he doesn't even give us like a build up to Ahsoka. Like the very first, sh- like the second shot we see her is like a full face reveal. Like, and like it's it's a stalking scene. Those sequences are by their nature created, you know, for build up and a slow reveal. And he just kind of like blows it right up front. And it, like it's just. And it's like it's a good sequence. It's just the way like she lights her sabers and disappears into the darkness. Like there's a lot of really great ideas, but there's a kind of it's a continual frustration for me that he just doesn't build up to the moments and in between them the way he should. You know, for full impact. Like think of how powerful a, a face reveal for Ahsoka could have been if he had just like just made a sequence out of that and told a story with that rather than just right out the gate. Oh, there's Ahsoka. Like it's nothing. Yeah, that. That felt really weird in the moment whenever, you know, we're starting the episode and it's just, it's like, it's this long, it's kind of from a longer view, but she's still right there in frame, just cutting him down. Like, wait, you're not going to build to it. I I remember whenever we recorded the episode on this for uh, the Outer Rim, the thing that we kept saying was, I like everything conceptually, uh, it it is the execution where like the idea of this scene is great but he doesn't let things play out the way they should it feels like everything's cut by by like a few frames too short and yeah like it, it, it he's it's it's a guy who clearly knows film and and what makes these kinds of scenes cool but it's like there's just there's some step in that process that he's he's kind of lacking on where it's like all you you set up this cool moment and it was pretty cool but the moment before and the moment after kind of undermine it uh, like even the the scene where she lights her lightsabers i'm like just, man let that just let that moment breathe but it just it feels like it happens and then it's you know it's gone yeah and there is a weird fan film quality about the lightsaber combat here but no but a really good fan film where they hired real stunt people and like they, they, they know what they're doing but it's still not doesn't have that it's kind of indefinable like well, what separates a really good fan film from a movie i i don't know if i can tell you but when you see it you see it and for me it feels like whenever the lightsaber combat is happening 
again, as you said, you know, the concepts are great. There's a lot of cool shots. The way where she turns off her lightsabers to disappear into the fog, that's really cool. <laughs> like when she cuts the guy in half, like she cuts through a guy and cuts the tree behind him or in front of him or where she cuts the so bell in half. Like there's a lot of really cool moments and beats. Like when she just kind of, she disarms the guy and looks at him and he runs off. But some, just something about the way he shoots action comes across as just a really good fan film. There's a particular technique he uses, which is just, to me, I call it the evil dead look, <laughs> which is like that you attach a camera to a bicycle and ride across the set and speed it up thing, which uh, I don't know. I, he could probably, if we we're just sitting down, he could probably walk me through why he decided to do this, the effect he's achieving and this and that. Maybe it's because I just so heavily associate it with this like B horror movie. <laughs> but whenever the camera is just kind of doing that, that really quick kind of zooming across yeah, the, the environment, I'm like that. I, I don't know. Like I, I, I'm just waiting for Bruce Campbell. This, this is, <laughs> and because that's like the ultimate, like budget horror film. What I mean, I freaking love those movies so much. Uh, but because everybody who loves those movies is incredibly aware of the shoestring budget and like <laughs> everything that they were able to achieve with it, you're like, oh yeah, this is this is cool stuff on a budget. <laughs> and so like I I can't look at that without being like, oh yeah, this, there's I don't know. Now I'm thinking about like money and this is reminding me of low budget stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and it's the same with the, the big final fight between Ahsoka and Elsbeth. Like the, the the framing of the fight, like the shots leading up to it, these epic wides of Ahsoka standing there with her, you know, her cloak blowing in the wind. That's really cool. And then they start fighting, and it turns into just the most bland TV fight, where it's just cut, cut, cut. Like, and none of the camera work is you know accentuating the action. You can't really follow what's going on because because it's so it's just so choppy and uninspired, which is just disappointing because just ahsoka has such a phenomenal fighting style you know in the in the show with her the way she uses her two lightsabers and just like very little of that got across here and i think it's just because you know had a filmmaker who's just very good has a lot of vision and understands the characters and story but just some of the just the basic filmmaking technique he just doesn't quite have yet yeah and i think the good thing is you know to keep this from sounding too negative is the fact that like it's never maybe with the exception of the evil dead camera it's never that he comes up with this idea that i'm like oh you like don't do that or like it, it always feels like he's going for something and yeah. you know i i think with you know if it seems like live action is going to be something that he dabbles he continues to dabble in to some extent in the future uh i am excited and i think optimistic about about that you know i think he's going to you know refine himself and i think he, he needs to go and direct a million dollar like romantic like tiny intimate romantic drama just to figure out you know pacing and acting and things like that like you, know, get, you just don't try and learn all that when you're doing your this 10 million dollar tv show like I just like there's some like some very basic things he still needs to learn that I think might be better learned outside the biggest franchise of all time. <laughs> so yeah, yeah I, I, I criticize this episode a lot, but I really do, I do like it a lot. I just as we talked about you know the atmosphere, which is 
<laughs> that's ever present. So that's always making me like it more. Um, so I think Ahsoka is really well done. You know, concerns aside, I think Dawson is great. Um, I love every single scene of just her and Big and Mando and Yoda. Just the character stuff happening is really wonderful and rich, and just it's 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 a cool episode i think uh even with the problem so i do like it a lot despite having spent half this time criticizing it yeah uh and i mean i i really like you said i, I love the atmosphere i love i love all of the kurosawa stuff like it's it's always cool whenever i these you know what whether it's the movies or the shows kind of embrace the the eastern um with some asides and the thing is like with almost every negative i can bring up i've i can always add like a positive caveat to it <laughs> like i i really did like this episode a lot you know often when i criticize filmmaking it's usually for like a lack of imagination a lack of vision like feloni doesn't have that problem like he's so clearly just ambitious and he has these pictures in his mind and he's trying to get them on screen and, and like even when i i'm frustrated i kind of have to respect that like there's and, clearly so much talent, even when it doesn't fully come across. And it, it, it's also funny, you know, as as somebody who really, really loves the Last Jedi and does get frustrated at what I think is so often an overemphasis on like fan entitlement and and fan service and stuff. You know, I can I can rant about that for hours and hours. And almost fool myself that I'm, I'm not one of the fans that also likes to be serviced. And so, like, <laughs> when Ahsoka shows up, I'm like, oh, that's really cool. I know her. Like, this is awesome. And then whenever she's like, oh, tell me where Admiral Thrawn is, I'm like, oh, Admiral Thrawn, what the heck? And you know, she's like, oh, oh yeah, I'm Admiral you. Thrawn. What about? What do you think about that? <laughs> yeah, I was like taken aback. I'm like, what the heck? They're they're bringing all sorts of stuff here. And, and, you know, like, whenever she says, hey, I can't train him, but go here, maybe another Jedi. I'm like, oh, what if it's so-and-so? What if it's so-and-so? Like, so, you know, again, I can it's just... It's going to be Ezra. I could, I could sit down with somebody and rant for two hours about, you know, the state of Star Wars and fandoms in general beyond and every all of this stuff. And then they give me the stuff. And I'm like, ah, yeah, this is really cool. I like that. Yeah, so like the the Thrawn thing is fascinating, and I'm very relieved that it's going to be Filoni writing Ahsoka and not Favreau, because Favreau doesn't. I don't like. I, I, has he even watched Clone Wars or Rebels? <laughs> when you're watching these these uh, shows, it's not very clear that he has. So, I think giving that to to Filoni to you know play with these characters he already had, you know, definitely gives me um a sense of relief. And so like, I but last time we saw Ezra and Thrawn, they just shot off into nowhere with a bunch of space whales and Sabine and Ahsoka were searching for them. And I, I don't, I don't, under, where does Thrawn fit in to the Star Wars timeline right now? That's going to be interesting. I, I, I'm a little worried that they'll have like just a small TV sized conflict with Thrawn and then they'll, you know, get rid of him and he'll be done with Star Wars. And I kind of hope they don't because like, I, like th that kind of character deserves a big grand story Man, just imagine what if what if they do like a Star Wars story spin-off as like the finale? I mean, I know this is just the most wishful thinking imaginable. But, <laughs> man. But it's like but like where does a 
grand conflict fit into the Star Wars can. Like we there's like not a lot happens between now and the Force Awakens. And we and what happens what does happen, we know. So like they have to either go off way into just unknown space or be a really tiny story. Um so I'm not I'm not sure what they're gonna do, but it's <laughs> just the the potential comes with some concerns. I, I have a lot of concerns, apparently. So the next episode uh, is The Tragedy. This one is directed by Robert Rodriguez, if you couldn't tell by watching it, uh, and written by Jon Favreau. Uh, the DP is David Klein. Uh, he's primarily been Kevin Smith's uh, director of ph- uh, photography, actually, um, going as far back as Clerks. Uh his work has mostly been with a lot of TV stuff like True Blood and Homeland, uh, though he is going to be working with Rodriguez's, uh, with Rodriguez for his next film. Uh, as for cast, Tomorrow Morrison is back uh, in a significant way, not just like the, the tease that we got before. Um, and we also see the return of Ming-Na Wen as Fennec Shand uh, from season one, uh, this time with robotic guts. It's a cool effect they show up. And... Just like the the fact that this episode being directed by Robert Rodriguez feels immediately evident, it also feels immediately evident that this is an episode not shot primarily with volume, but on location instead. I, I We see a little bit of that with Sanctuary, but this is like this. They're, they're out on a mountain, you know, and you feel that. And that's really, really cool. Uh, they shot it in the hills of the Simi Valley, just north of L.A., uh, and it has that Southern California look, but I think it, it really works here. Um, according to an interview with one of the, the VFX guys, there were only six costumed stormtroopers ever on location for this episode. And that is not something that I think uh, is immediately evident. So whenever you see more than six guys at once, it's because there's digital characters there. And I, I think it's integrated super well. For the the actual synopsis, uh, in this following Ahsoka's tip, Mando travels to the Jedi Temple on Tython. There, Baby Yoda, now known as Grogu, uh, sends out his call. While he's busy, Boba Fett and his newly indentured gun, Fennec Shan, show up. Uh, Boba demands his armor back. Uh, before anything can be resolved, troop carriers full of stormtroopers land. Mando, Boba, and Fennec team up and kill about 400 of them. Uh, it goes on a while, but it's great. Uh, while they're out there having fun, dark troopers sneak in and steal Grogu and bring him to Gideon. And then just because they know that we all love the ship, Gideon uses the light cruiser to blow up the Razor Crest. Uh, Boba ends up agreeing to help Mando rescue baby Yoda in return for his armor. Uh, they then go to recruit Cara Dune, who is now a ranger of the New Republic, to their quest. And uh, this is the Robert Rodriguez episode. And <laughs> that's about it. Um... It's a lot of fun. It's it's part of me wants to be the persnickety snooty um Star Wars fan. I'm here for the for the high opera and the drama and the characters and the emotion and I'm so much above all this, you know, trite fan service and cool, you know, action sequences that have no weight and meaning and oh my gosh, it's so freaking cool and I love it. Uh yeah, I I was talking with a friend. We didn't watch it together. Um and he he's less interested in Star Wars than I am, but I mean, you know he really likes the good ones and stuff. And so we watched this episode, and he for him it was very much just a confirmation of like what Star Wars is now, which is like it's it's by the fans for the fans, lacks ambition and this. And, 
And it was like, he just had a really negative reaction. And he was just kind of talking through all of that. And I'm kind of like nodding my head like, okay, yep, yep. This is for the fa- Like, this is all done. And then at the end, he's like, all right, so I'm assuming you thought the same. Like, I don't know, man. I really like the episode. Uh, <laughs> which, again, kind of goes back to my point from the previous episode, uh, which is I can't pretend that I'm not one of the fans that they're really, you know, catering to. And so, you know, it's it's Tamura Morrison, who I've always thought is awesome. He's back looking like a total BA, just like cracking helmets and stuff with a freaking gaffy stick. And Robert Rodriguez just going full on grindhouse. Like it's it's, it's cool. Like, I don't know. I, I'm not going to apologize for liking this episode. Dang it, it's dope. Like any other filmmaker, and I would probably get offended just how nonsensical the action is and i have a whole rant about this just like we only ever see about like 15 stormtroopers get off of two (laughs) carriers troop carriers but they kill i i counted they kill 89 troopers out of like the 15 we see disembark (laughs) and we see the direction they're coming from but no they're coming from the they're coming from every direction and everywhere you look there's a stormtrooper it's it's like the, the, there's no logic and sense of geography or anything to any of this. It's just Rodriguez wanted to have cool Star Wars action, and he got his chance, and he shot every single idea he's ever had. You know, from the time he was born to where he's now in his fifties, every single cool idea for an action sequence in Star Wars he had, he shot it all in this nine-minute action sequence that just keeps going and escalating and getting more ridiculous like have you seen desperado or el mariachi i haven't yet i'm it's weird. i'm very familiar with his style but i actually haven't seen anything from him outside of like the spy kids movies well you have seen it now since you've seen the tragedy <laughs> it's it's like that exact same thing which is everywhere you turn there's a bad guy lined up for a shot and you and it's like they just keep coming and Nobody can shoot you because you're awesome. And it's, it's that kind of action, which is, which is, you know, that's how we play. It, like when we were you know, kids out in the woods with our sick gun, like that's kind of how you play your battles. Like, oh, just people everywhere. They're not going to shoot me because I'm because I'm the good guy. And like it, it, it has that feel. But and I, I feel like under a different filmmaker, it would have gotten frustrating and just irritating at the lack of logic. But there's just so much exuberance to it here that you just got to just like put your brain away and smile and have fun. Yeah. And I ended up having fun. <laughs> um, it's just the, the, the big thing you hear is, is Boba Fett. He's, you know, he's back in star Wars. He didn't die in the Sarlacc pit. Um, like the character here for me, he's kind of, he's just like a new character. Cause like nothing that I know about Boba Fett from the, from the, um, Either the original trilogy, the Clone Wars, or various the uh, holiday special, like, for instance, ca- 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 that or various canon books and stories I've read. Like nothing about that character, the characterization really comes through. Like this guy has like a really strong code of ethics and honor, and he hates the Empire. Whereas like the Boba Fett of canon has been was like completely you know crooked he, he, he was always working for, he was always working for the empire one of you know vader's favorites he also like would do anything for the score and you know cheat and betray and kill anyone in anything like 
So like, there's really no nothing carrying over from the characterization, but I don't really care because this new guy is really awesome, and Tomorrow Morrison is just so much fun. Um, is it just me or is his New Zealand accent like significantly thicker than it was in the prequels? Oh yeah, dude, his his it's so like pronounced and it sounds even better because his voice has gotten even deeper I'm like oh my gosh this guy is so cool and I, i'm very happy that they really really embraced that accent yeah so you got this grizzled old dude walking in with this really thick accent uh, new zealand accent and he, he incorporates some of like his uh maori heritage like with i uh, talked about bringing in some of like the haka i don't know if it's is it a dance or wh- whatever it is that that kind of the chance they go through. He brought some of that into the movements of how he fought with the gaffy stick and like the, the kind of the snarls he had on his face as he <laughs> killed them very, very dead. Like it, it just, it's just, just so much force of personality coming off of this dude as he's going around murdering people. And it's, it's just kind of awe inspiring to watch like, you know, this. Was he like, he's probably like mid sixties, but he's just so much power coming off of him. That's the thing. Like he just, he looks so dangerous in this. Like every time he brings down the gaffy stick on somebody's head or like stabbing them into their torso, like it just, it feels like just brutal. And like you just see the muscles, work. even though he's under full armor, you just feel like you're seeing all of the these man's massive muscles like drilling this freaking spear into somebody's abdomen. Mm. And apparently the gaffy stick was his idea and he, pit- he pitched it to the uh, to you know, Favreau and Filoni. And there's a uh, a scene in the behind, there's a shot from behind the scenes, uh, the gallery on Disney Plus, where he's on set in the full Mando regalia with his big push broom twirling it around and showing them how he would do his fight scene um, with the gaffy stick, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, there's also a shot of him standing out there. He's got the full Mando suit on and like a cowboy hat and he's like framed on a rock and it's amazing. <laughs> Yeah, so like getting back to Rodriguez, um, there's a quote, like pretty much what I, like when I first saw it, I kind of guessed where like this was all his Star, like he took every Star Wars idea he ever had and put it in this one episode, and then I watched the gallery and he literally says, um, "My approach was to pretend that this was the only time we'll ever see Boba Fett, so it has to satisfy. He needs to be all things right here, right now, and he, he definitely does that." Yes, and, and I think overall, I think this episode is really well directed. Um, just being outside again was, is again, those things you don't realize how much you miss them until you see it again. And you just feel like, oh, I can, like, I can breathe again. There's, there's the sky and the sun and greenery. It's so cool. And yes, I, yes it, you know, it, it looks like they just shot somewhere in Southern California for free, but I don't care because I'm outside again. And like, it's, and there's just a lot of really cool shots. The shot where they, when they're in the ship circling the temple, and we're seeing out the window as they're circling on the mountains. Really cool the way he shoots the flying jetpack, um, running up and down the mountain. He has like this low angle shot that's like tracking along the ground as you have the characters either running up or down the mountainside. And it's like really gorgeous wide sh- moving shots. Um, the way he's always framing Boba Fett with the sun behind him. It's like it's really well shot. And then some of the, the Rodriguez sloppiness slips in occasionally. Like, there are some shots of the stormtroopers running up the hill that I swear I've seen in the fan film somewhere. <laughs> like, like, there's... 
and this is probably where having only six guys kind of hurts it where you just it's just like a shot of one stormtrooper standing in tall grass waving and, and it's like there it doesn't feel like you're watching a million dollar production it totally feels like it's some guys out in a field you know, with, with their stormtrooper costumes shooting something uh like that's like an issue i've always i've had with rodriguez like if you watch a lot of his stuff like he's got he can be kind of sloppy sometimes where it's like there's like just kind of good enough like he'll just get shots and edits and just choices like what were you thinking like why didn't you just spend like another 10 minutes and get that right and he'll just like he'll just put it in the movie because you know he, just, he has to move on and over like when he's working for other people i think the movie the faculty alita battle angel like the, the, that isn't really as much of a problem and it's not as much of a problem here in this episode but there are some shots that are straight out of a fan film yeah so what was weird to me is uh like there are definitely certain shots where i'm like oh yeah do you i i do think i may have seen something very similar to that in a fan film the real fan filmy thing to me though came from like just the the feel of the the just the look of it like there, there are some moments. Well, yeah, because they're all shot in Southern California. <laughs> well, there's that, but it it also just feels like it went through absolutely no process at all. Where, it, like it, it feels oh, like color, you know color correction and grading. Yeah, like there's no correction or grading. It's, it just it feels, it feels like you took out just a regular like home video camera, and shot some stuff, and then, like that's the show. Like it, it, it genuinely did feel like. We've just got a like a, a pretty crisp handheld camera and it we didn't do anything to the footage. Like it, it feels straight out of like I don't know, I could buy something like that and shoot that and just not touch it and that's what it looks like here. Which is a thing for most of the show, but I think it, it, it shows here because it's actually outside and you're actually seeing real things. So like like I could actually shoot something like that. Whereas like when you're on the volume and you're on um, a planet, a lava planet, like even though there's very little color grading, very little done to the image, it still looks different. You know, it still looks like a fantasy. Whereas here, it's just them standing out in the tall grass. Yeah, there, there are mo- like the the moments where the cameras like following, and like I love, I love the shot itself where the 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 camera's following the gaffy stick as he gra- drags it across the the ground and stuff. But it really does feel like like oh, I I grabbed an easy like easily portable camera and i'm just pointing it at this and then i like went and showed my friends what i shot without touching it it was weirdly noticeable to me i guess is all i'm saying but what does help is i think a lot of the cinematography is just really really good or if not amazing just really cool um like the gaffy stick shot and it's just the way he shoots um Boba taking out the stormtroopers, like yeah, he'll, he like when he hits the guy on the rock, he falls off the rock, hits another rock, bounces off another rock, and lands on the ground. And Boba Fett jumps after him, like he does all of that in a single shot. Like there's so much, so much he'll do so much in just one shot in this, like that you almost never see in, in the Western fight scenes. Like this, the stunt work in this in this episode is unreal like the things he does with the bodies of stormtroopers just throwing them around like rag dolls all within a single shot and like that, that shot of the following the gaffy stick or just the way he's framed against the sun it's just, there's so much just cool stuff happening and the same thing when he comes back with his uh full boba fett suit and the armor and he just kills another 30 40 guys <laughs> um it's just awesome yeah yeah, his bad. 
he's he's got new music to match his new persona and it's incredible it's scary <laughs> so going back to the opening of the episode we have baby yoda on at the temple um and he sends out some kind of mystical call thing that creates a force field um just baby yoda's adorable his little ears flappy in the breeze as he's flying with the jetpack um oh the opening scene where man it was just like grogu and just calling his name just just to make him look at him he's chuckling uh just more awesome sweet dad stuff <laughs> the way they, they i think they make mando try to run into that force field like three times <laughs> and then they wanted him out of the action so you know fennec shand and boba could do their thing so he just spends half the episode trying to run run into a wall <laughs> which is kind of funny uh, and the excuse they give her ha- for him putting down the jetpack is a bit ridiculous. Like, it's a, it's very contrived at times, but it's you know the cool factor makes it work. Let's see, and we get the intro of the dark troopers, and uh, well, we, we don't see a lot, but they're pretty cool. I, I I like the way he shoots like people jetpacking through the sky. Like, he has a really dynamic looking shots. Um, and they take Baby Yoda. And the cry he has as they fly away and Mando's mm-hmm. running after him. It's it's wrong. And just, just to hurt us more, they blow up the Razor Crest, which I didn't realize how attached it was to the ship until it happened. We just had to suffer through that freaking Mon Calamari repairs. And now this. Oh, bastards. And... <laughs> and so then they give, I guess, something of an answer to a long-running controversy in Star Wars, an answer that's undone in the next episode, but the answer here, uh, the, the question of whether or not Boba Fett is a Mandalorian or whether or not Jango is a Mandalorian. Um, so I, I guess people just assume they were until the Clone Wars, where the uh, Prime Minister of of Mandalore, Almec, said, you know, uh, Jango Fett was a common thief, nothing more. Like, how he got that armor is beyond me. And so like, oh, I guess he wasn't a Mandalorian. And that upset a lot of people. And then now we get the show, and at the end of it, Jingle call uh, Boba calls Mando over, and he shows him like, you know, this armor has been in my family for however many years. Like it's, he they, they say he was a found or Jingle was a foundling, uh, like like um like Din Din Djarin. I think it's the first time I've said his name in either of these two episodes. Uh so you see, like they seem to be answering like, oh no, he is a Mandalorian. And then next episode where Bo Katan says, you know, you're no Mandalorian, and ever said I was. It's like. I don't know. I, I I think I think they're trolling us now. I think they're just like making fun of us, you know, in in the studio, laughing. Oh, oh, they're gonna see this. They're gonna get so excited. And then next episode, we'll have this line and and frustrate them again. I don't know. But and I love that. He he's a, he's a not he's a, he's a Mando, not Mando. I don't know. Whatever. Yeah. Then at the very end, we get uh, Baby Yoda just tossing around stormtroopers like rag dolls, and uh, John, John Carlo Esposito just gets to be so very evil. Like, I'm just imagining him on set giving these, like, gleefully evil monologues to the puppet. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a delightful image. Um, you know, you've gotten very good with that, but it makes you, oh, so sleepy. And he's just taunting him with the dark saber, And then <laughs> they just stand up and stun him. And leave him in tiny little baby handcuffs, which who makes those and why do they have them? If you, if you didn't know he's evil, they got the baby in handcuffs. That's how evil they are. <laughs> it's so sad. All right, moving to the next episode is, the next one is The Believer. This one is written and directed by Rick Famuyiwa. 
it's shot by Matthew Jensen. Um, so we got the the return of Bill Burr as Space Bill Burr, also known as Migs Mayfield or Mayfeld. Character actor Richard Brake shows up as Valen Hess. Um, and this is the first and so far only episode in the series to not feature Baby Yoda. And I hate myself for saying this, but he wasn't missed. Um, so this one opens with uh, the Baby Yoda rescue force recruiting Mayfeld from his prison work camp uh, to join their quest. They go to the planet Morak to infiltrate an Imperial Rhydonium ref- refinery to get intel. Mando and Mayfeld commandeer a truck and have a relaxed philosophical discussion before being ambushed by pirates. Mando punches them and they all explode. At the refinery, Mando gets the location of Gideon's cruiser, but an old commander of Mayfeld's wants to chat. He acts uh, super creepy and evil, so Mayfeld shoots him, and they escape the refinery, shooting a whole bunch of Imperials, and then they blow up the place for a good measure. Uh, Mando then sends a message to Gideon informing him that he done messed up and a butt whooping is imminent. All right. I love this episode. It's amazing. Go ahead and talk about it, James. <laughs> this is my favorite episode of the series. Uh, I, I, It's so good. <laughs> it's just really, really so great. I, I think it's like... It feels like some of the most confident direction we've seen, where it's like he's... You, you take that, like, the chase scene and everything on the roof, and you throw that in a live act. Like, you throw that in one of the, the movies that we go and see in theaters. It's like, yeah, that... Yeah, that's what that looks like. This is, this is what they're supposed to feel like. You you take any of these scenes of dialogue, whether it's them and the the transport thing, or them at the table, which feels like right out of Inglorious, or just something from Tarantino. Like it just, it it just feels so right and polished and well done. Uh, yeah, I I really really love this episode. Yeah. So this you know, Famuyiwa is the only. Uh, director of this series aside from Favreau and Filoni who gets to write uh, the first step in um, season one he wrote The Prisoner that was with a guy named Christopher Yost but this is all him um, and like you definitely feel a different writer like Favreau is just it's all bare bones all exposition just gets the plot points um, Fa- Filoni has a lot more co- um, dialogue but he his characters they kind of speak and they speak in, I guess, platitudes. Like there's, it's not entirely naturalistic, which is fine because that's that Star Wars is is platitudes if nothing else. But it's much more stoic. His his dialogue, I think. But family, you, I think he has the most natural voice or naturalistic voice of um of the writers, and we just have like lengthy sequences of dialogue, which is it's just they're just people talking. Fancy that. Like, where's this been? Uh and I'm I'm sure Bill Burr probably you know puts a lot of his own spin on his dialogue, but just these lengthy conversations, he's just the character. It just feels so much more natural and relaxed than this show usually does. Um, and you you combine this very naturalistic, relaxed dialogue with, but and and also just rich dialogue. There's there's so much character detail happening within the dialogue scenes, and you match that with just uber confident and just competent direction where it's just basic competency is not always a guarantee on this show. And so we have somebody who just comes in with so so much confidence and competence and it just does everything very, very well. And right from the opening scene, you can see that um, just the way he shoots in the volume, you would never know he's shooting in this, you know, this you know enclosed space 
th this is kind of a problem for Filoni and for um for Bryce Dallas Howard where they feel like they're shooting in a studio where the shots are they're, they're, they're all all the shots feel kind of tightly framed and like they're trying to avoid getting away from the characters because oh no you might see the wall whereas Femiwa comes in he's like he'll just do these huge wide shots where half of it's the, this fake sky and the characters are like down here in the corner and it just gives a sense of scale and confidence um you know in the technology in the space and it just you it feels this I don't, I don't think there was any locating shooting on this episode and i almost can't believe it because it feels so expansive and so natural and we're outdoors in bright sunlight half the time and, and these action scenes happening on these trucks and these wide landscapes um and he just shoots it all so naturalistically and with such a, a grand vision and that you just you never think about the fact that you're on a volume and the wall of led screens is 20 feet that way yeah, it's amazing. I, I, I can even watch it with the intention of like trying to find, you know, just some sort of thing here or there that like reminds me of their limitations. I'm like, I don't know. It just it feel I'm watching a movie. <laughs> it just it feels right. Yeah, and like I, I, if they can pair him with Filoni, like give him and Filoni the Zoga show. Like let them go off do their thing. Filoni can write. Famio can direct. I would be a very happy camper. Yeah. So this one brings back a Bill Burr, and I love Bill Burr. And he's he's just Bill Burr, but who cares? Because he's he's having so much fun. I, I I like that he's you know in a work camp dismantling ties rather than just sitting in prison. Like it feels like just really good world building. Like they could he just could have been in some generic cell, but like no, like what would a, what what a Star Wars prison camp look like? Although the question arises, why do they need Mayfeld? Like. Presumably, there are millions of ex-imperials ex in custody who have pretty much the same info they need. Uh, but they, yeah, they need the it. one guy. They need the guy, the one guy from Chapter Six. So hey, why not? <laughs> so we get to the planet, and uh, there's these big juggernauts transporting transporting Rhydonium. Uh, and it was a cool seeing Rhydonium again. That's something that's shown up several times in the animated shows. Uh, it's a little weird seeing tired vehicles in Star Wars. Like, wheels just aren't something you see. So when they show up, like, oh, wait, I haven't seen one of those in a long time. And apparently, Family World likes action scenes on you know, moving, big moving vehicles. Uh, he's, and he's, I bet he's an indie fan. Oh, you think, he, yeah, you, you think he's seen uh, you know, The Last Crusade, maybe? Yeah, these... These feel very like because I got super. I'm obviously there's the Last Crusade stuff from the the child and and this I really felt like the the uh, Raiders chase you know like where he's under mm -hmm. he ends up going under the vehicle he doesn't do that in this one but it, it really feels like that kind of like multi vehicle chase in that and honestly a cowboy fist fight on top of a big heavy moving metal vehicle is the superior action form I can. I just I just have so much fun with that type of the action, the creativity you can have, and just that classic style of just you know, throwing punches and all that. It's it's so cool. Yes, uh, but before that, we we have a, a rather a surprisingly lengthy conversation between um, Mayfeld and Mando. <laughs> this is just so many good lines I've written down. It's like I don't know how you people wear them, and by you people, I do mean Mandalorians. <laughs> And he's just like poking at him, and this is, this, he kind of goes on this this kind of monologue about 
how the empire and the new republic they're not that different is you know yeah empire new republic it's all the same to these people invaders invaders on their land is all we are he just he, he just kind of goes unprompted in this kind of questions of morality and like all I know is your rules change when things get desperate. Everybody's got their lines they don't cross until things get messy. As far as I'm concerned, if you can get through your day and still sleep at night, you're do, doing better than most. Um, and at first, it kind of just felt like he'd just be a jerk. But now thinking about it, I feel like he's he's kind of intimidated by Mando. Whereas like he Mando is a true believer. Like he has this hard and fast code. And Mayfeld likes to present himself as someone who doesn't, who doesn't care. You know, like the Empire, New Republic, it doesn't matter. It's all the same. You know, we're all just people being crushed by the system. And so like kind of like he's trying to justify his choices in life and justify his non-involvement. And so like Mando, the Mando's silent presence is like judging and intimidating him. So like he just has to talk and try and poke holes in this, this figure of someone that he knows is pro- you know, probably better than himself. It just, it felt like that kind of nervous defense mechanism almost. Yeah. It, the whole conversation feels like it's him trying to prove himself right. You know, and if, if the things that he says aren't true with Mando, then, you know, this, this, you know, he's one of the guys who's trying to be able to sleep at night, you know, and if, if what he's saying about Mando isn't true, then, you know, his this entire philosophy he's built up around himself is is just just wrong. You know, like there well, all of these things that I tell myself aren't true. So so he's gotta make the Mandalorian jabs. He's gotta he's gotta, you know, talk about his whole worldview in hopes that something sticks so that he is able to sleep. Yeah. And something that n- normal TV shows do is they'll have each episode will have its like central theme. And you know, characters will go on various mini arcs that kind of all somehow intersect with that theme of the episode. Mando hasn't really done that because it doesn't really do themes. You know, it's just too cool for that. But you really feel that in this episode. You know, it's called the Believer, and you have you know, three different characters: Mayfeld, Mando, and and uh, Valen Hess, who kind of like approaching the idea of belief and fanaticism and codes from a different perspective and it kind of all intersects at that conversation at the table like it it was almost it was like oh wow themes and arcs in the mandalorian wow this is amazing uh because and it's like it's, it's really tightly written i think this is like oh like setups and payoffs and dialogue cool because uh, like almost everything line he says in this comes back you know later on you know from a different direction in that conversation scene in, at the uh in the cafe yeah and and it's also like even just beyond the writing which i i mean i i also think i think this is easily the strongest writing in the series like you said there's the the dialogue just feels right it's real conversations it's very natural conversations and so it's like it's got or monologuing in bill burr's case well that's true but it feels it's like it's monologues but it feels exactly like what you'd hear from a guy like this um and so like it, it both feels like the immediate like the immediacy of of the writing is great and that all all the conversations are super great and then the overarching themes like the 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 large stuff is there and it coalesces in 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 really cool ways um but even beyond all of that i'm kind of already predisposed to love mayfeld just because i'm a big bill burr fan Mm -hmm. uh like i I think he's hilarious. I love his uh, his stand up and stuff. 
And like you said at the beginning, like he, he's he's called Mayfeld, but he's Bill Burr. But he, like, what I love about his performance is that it's like it's Bill Burr, but it's also a great performance. Like everything I love about the guy is here in the character, but he's he's acting. Like it's it's real acting. You know, it's it's great. Whether it's it is that kind of poking and prodding Mando, or you know the the scene with Hess at the oh, table. We're going to talk about it's, that scene. Yeah, I'll I'll just tease it here, but like it's just it's so he he's genuinely great. Like I don't have to I don't love him just because I am kind of a Bill Burr fan, but like he's he's great. It's I don't know. It, it's just he's giving such a fantastic performance to me, and like it's it's helped by great dialogue and by great direction. His persona just fits what the Mandalorian is so well. Just this, the the scum and villainy of the show. Yeah. Um. Then we get to just the the uh, central action sequence, and it's so good. Like there's a lot of Indiana Jones, but it also it feels like a, a mashup of the train heist and the Kessel Run from Solo. Yeah, like, I definitely felt like that. You've got the ticking clock of the you know, the Rhydonium, which is a lot like the Coaxium. Like you were slowly heating up, so it adds this like great stakes to the sequence. You can't drive too fast, and oh, there's a bump. It's gonna blow up. Like it's it adds that whole level of stakes that you know you didn't need it it could have just been pirates but adding that i think just yeah. makes brings the sequence to another level it's something that i love so just to to gush over um from you as direction uh he builds tension like no other director in the series i think whether it is you know the the scene that we're going to talk to at the at the cafeteria like he he builds tension within dialogue and and drama in great ways but even just in action like i love when you know they're driving there and then we hear the explosion and we you know we see the smoke from their perspective like we don't get these like overhead shots of it it's just we hear it and i like i i watched this whenever i like i got a like a, a sound system so i had like the bass turned all the way up and you just you hear that low rumble and then you look mm-hmm. up and like there's the explosion and then there's the other explosion and like even before we get into like the actual action, it, I mean, it's just hey, other vehicles are exploding, so we know we're we're up next. Something's going on. Like it's it's simple on paper, but just the way that scene plays out in the episode, I think is fantastic. We're like, oh crap! Like what is going on? And and grounding it, like not giving us like the kind of god's eye view of stuff, but just like we're we're in this small thing and we're hearing like this distant explosions and we're seeing the smoke over the tree line and I, I just think it's so cool. Yeah, and just the way he he shoots the action, there's such a clarity to this sequence. It's just perfect use of the 180 line where almost the entire sequence is just shot from one side of the truck. So basically if you any given shot if a character is looking one way, you know exactly where you are on the truck at all times. And when they get into the hand-to-hand combat, it, it's it's tight. It's not over over edited. Like they'll go through multiple moves and strikes before cutting, and it's like this very kind of classic Western fist fight choreography. Um, it's it's just so cool. It's the, the the character the character stuff worked into it where he tries to fight like a Mandalorian and to block with his gauntlet, but oh, he doesn't have his gauntlet. He has his crappy stormtrooper armor, so it starts shattering and he's getting hurt. So he has to adapt his fighting style, you know, because he's no longer in um, Beskar, which I I, I like that because. Beskar, it looks really cool, but it's kind of a crutch in some of the action sequences. It makes him 
way too powerful. So it was fun to see him actually challenged here. Um, he still he still you know kicks all their asses, but at least it hurt a little bit to do it. And, and just the the build you talk about you know his his attention, but just the way he builds the sequence of the first skiff, then the second one, and then like he's he's so tired and beaten down, he kind of sits up, and then like five more are coming, and he just kind of slumps and sighs, and slowly stands up and raises his fists like he's gonna go down fighting. Um, it's just it's such a fun the way it's built. Uh, the shot of like the six pirates jumping in a line from their mm. skiff onto the back of the truck. Um, and we're so well-rooted in their perspective. Like, I don't, like how, you never you never think you're going to be hear the sound of TIE fighters and, like, be relieved and see a line of stormtroopers that, coming. Like, finally, we're that's, saved. That's the If anything takes away from the fun of the scene, it's like, wait, we're kind of killing the good guys, probably. Oh, like, they're pirates. They're, they're, def- they're definitely not freedom fighters. They're, they're definitely well, pirates who blow up yeah. all the valuable stores, but they're, they're, they're not freedom fighters. You know, definitely not. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> then it's fun again, I guess, but actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, we see uh, some uh, shore troopers from Rogue One again, which is pretty cool. Always love that. Man, I love my various stormtrooper armor so much i don't care if they're there for action figures the 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 trucker armor is cool too like those helmets are interesting yeah then we get to the scene in the cafe and mando is you know he he finally gets to where he breaks uh the mandalorian code to save his son And, and like this is obviously playing into all the ribbing that mayfeld was doing like like what does mando truly believe does he truly believe in this you know cult like code you know is you know you're does he love his son enough, you know, and believe in that enough to you know, to break this, you know, this this law that has defined his life up till now? This this scene is partly why I'm I'm having faith in where Filoni is going to go uh, later. And I know he like he didn't write this obviously, but it still feels like it's it's all one show where it, like the the decision the dilemma in this is it's breaking a dogmatic code for the sake of a familial love, you know? Yeah. I was thinking about how <laughs> a, 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 a introduction of lore that feels really stupid and counterintuitive in the moment, but pays off later on. That's what I was thinking about. Uh, that also happens in the show. So, hey, and, uh, Richard Brake walks over and no offense to the dude, but he was born to play villains. <laughs> he is like he's, he's got a like a very interesting face and he knows how to play it just to be the creepiest sob ever and just, like the way he always looks like he knows something you don't and he's totally smirking at you about it, and he's he's gonna get you and trap you and, and trap you in your words it's, it's just so creepy um, his his line readings are just perfect like well, first of all, they talk about Operation Cinder, which is awesome. As somebody yes. who's played the the Battlefront Two campaign a couple times, but don't worry, you know they're they're decanonizing the sequels. Oh yeah, it's all yeah, of course. Um, but like it's it's cool to to hear that said and used. Not even it's it's not just like you know this this kind of fan servicey name drop. Like for people who have played Battlefront Two, you you know what Operation Cinder is and what it how, like just 
how much of a betrayal it was to the the, the troops themselves, you know, this is the empire destroying their own. And so like when, when that is already a piece of lore established, you're able to use that in a way that isn't just, Oh, it's cool. He said the thing. It's like, no, he like, it's relevant because it, it's, it's what it, it's so relevant to, to Mayfeld as a character. And I love the, I started this by talking about a, his his incredible line reading where they're talking about Operation Cinder and Mayfeld is talking about how many people they lost and he just responds like all heroes of the Empire I'm like oh my gosh you're incredible you're an incredible actor oh I just like I want to I'm ready to see you get shot in the face man mm-hmm. yeah and before we talk about Bill Brown I want to talk about Mando or uh, Pedro Pascal his facial acting playing a person who cannot act is so good like he's just he's like he's so cool and confident in his mando armor and you take the helmet off and he's just a scared little puppy and he doesn't know where to look or how to speak and he's like, old brown eyes <laughs> yeah he's just like so just sad sad lonely little man who just cannot interact with the, the human species um because he's had a helmet on all his life and then you got a Mayfeld, you know, he's talked about how little he cares, but now he's ri- risking a lot to come in and, and, you know, talk up, talk Valen Hess down and they have the conversation. And th- this is where Burr really, really shines. Um, Cause like for the first half of the conversation, he just looks kind of nervous, but there's th- th- this, the slow build of the internal distress he's going through uh, is so well played like every time you cut back, it's just a little fraction turned up till by the end where he's like having almost like a full blown panic attack. And you realize like, like all those lines he had earlier about how nothing really matters. Like he's been telling himself like that because he's been party to atrocities. Like he has to tell himself that the empire really wasn't worse than the new Republic is or the Republic before it, because you know he was part of the atrocities they committed. And, oh, look, I just brought in a, a shipload of Rhydonium that's going to be used for further atrocities. And now that's also on me. You know, he talk, you know, talking about, you know, if, if you can, you know, go through your day and, and sleep at night, you're doing better than most. And he gets to the point where he finally realized, like, I, I'm never going to be able to sleep again if I just sit here and let this happen. And 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 all that that and also you know the anger and hatred from losing thousands of his you know his 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 you know his own men at, at you know at the orders of Alan has the man across the table who's just smirking about it. Uh, but just, just that the build up and the the way he portrays that roiling pain and fear and a, a, a touch I noticed recently and really liked is every now and then he kind of tosses a glance to Mando and Mando's like shaking so like no, no don't do it don't do it and he's like it's almost like he's like I know this is stupid we're gonna die I'm sorry <laughs> but this is something I have to do right here right now he's like and it's, it's like all of that is happening in his face it's it's so good like why why is this the first time in you know almost two seasons that we've had you know this this level of powerful like just emotional dialogue and, and just character stuff happening like can we please have more of this in the show like, do we have to hire more writers do we have to like tie up favreau and not let him write anything i don't know but i i want more stuff like this just this incredible powerful character you know meeting is happening yeah 
Yeah, it's so good. And this this tension is, you know, what I was talking about earlier, which it it's not the oh, and then he said the thing and then he shot him real quick. It's like the that the first part is kind of framed like it's a oh, is he gonna do it? What's going on? Like I I hope he can keep his cool. And then at a point you're like, no, I there's it's no longer is he, it's like when is it gonna happen? And so now you're like holding your breath, like at what point is he going to pull the trigger? Because I know he is, but how far are we going to get? And it's just, anytime you think it's going to happen, it doesn't. And he just, like, the dialogue keeps going on. It's, oh, it's so good. So good. Mm-hmm. And Hess's line, you know, you, you see, boys, everybody thinks they want freedom. But what they really want is order. And when they realize that, they're going to welcome, welcome us back with open arms. And that kind of, I think, finally clarifies the various, the questions of, you know, the believer. Who, like, who is it talking about? I, th- I think that title is referring to all three of them, where Valen Hess is a true believer in the Empire and a true fanatic, which makes him absolutely terrifying. And then, you know, you have Mando, the question of how much does he believe in the, you know, the Mandalorian code versus, you know, helping a, a loved one. And Mayfeld, like, does he truly believe in, you know, his his philosophy of not, you know, of, you know, hands-off philosophy, like, I'm not going to get involved, doesn't matter. And then, you know, it all kind of comes crashing down in this one sequence inside the, the cafe. Um, and, you know, Mayfeld finally has to choose a side and, and faced with the unimaginable evil of what the Empire is. And he has to you know, put a stop to it. And, you know, it's not, and it's not, and not just his own personal thing, like, he, like his own personal beef, beef with Hess. Um, like he at the end where he go he turns around and blows up the entire base, you know, getting rid of the Rhydonium he delivered, um, uh, is he's he's actually fighting the Empire now and just the idea of what it is and this and you know he can't pretend that it's no more evil than the New Republic anymore. Yeah. <laughs> then he shoots the poor dude who just wanted lunch. I feel so bad for that stormtrooper. This little tray of food. He gets blown away. It's great. And then the lot. Then there's a pause, and he, uh, he hit you like Bilbo hands on the helmet. You, go, you did what you had to do. I never saw your face. And then he turns pointedly away. Is like, it's like both of them reveal the side of themselves that they did. They re- they wish they had kept hidden. And so now they're like, there's this silent kind of this silent vow of silence between them and understanding. Um, like they're ne- no one else is ever gonna know what happened in this room. And like this is the, the kind of silent understanding they come to is kind of cute. And I love that, like you know, like we said in their their conversation initially, it's it's him like poking him. He's he's being intentionally antagonistic about Mandalorians and the code and stuff. And that's gone here. Where it's like it. He doesn't have like one last parting shot. It isn't like hey, this is important to you. So I want and like it, there may be kind of a you know we're taking it's this mutual thing you know people aren't going to hear about this because i don't want them to hear about it like that that is there but it also does feel like there there was some level of like by him being able to be open about it you know in in that moment about you know his true feelings for the empire and and what that's done to him because so much of him poking like mandalorian culture it's like we said, it's for the sake of justifying this worldview that he's built. But now that that's kind of that illusion has been shattered, he can hand him the helmet and be like, all right, I didn't see anything. You know, I'm not mm-hmm. going to tease you about it. Yeah. 
Then they shoot a bunch of people. Um, and watching uh, Fen- yeah, watching Fennec and uh, Cara Dune snipe dudes up on the roof. It was giving me flashbacks to the the original Battlefront Two uh, when you're the sniper there. Mm. And seismic charges. The most satisfying sound in cinema. Uh so cool. The, just the sound, the visual, everything about it. It's, it's such a satisfying moment after we've been on such a roller coaster this episode. It's, it's a great. You know, close to the action sequence. And then Mando calls Gideon and Pedro Pascal's line reading where he's throwing this uh, Gideon speech from uh, from Redemption back in his face is... Oh, it chills, man. It's so good. Yeah. yeah. Start to finish. Everything about this episode is great. My, the one thing I was really... I was so hoping that they'd offer like a basically offer like a position to him to, to, to Mayfield. Oh. Yeah. I I think he's coming back. I do. I want him so badly to come back. Yeah, I'm now that uh now that uh Gina Carano isn't an option for Rangers, maybe maybe he'll fill in. Throw some money at him. Uh so for our season two finale, uh the episode is The Rescue, and this one is directed by Peyton Reed and written by John Favreau, shot by Baz Idowin. Mark Hamill returns to provide the voice of Luke Skywalker, which works like perfectly here. Um, there's uh, we found out like there's body double stuff going on as well, but apparently he was also on the set and not just for voice work. Like he was, he may have occupied the like the like there he he was involved physically to some extent. I'm not exactly sure where who is and who is and who isn't and stuff but they're both there and in the post credit scene matthew wood uh returns to play bib fortuna who he played in the phantom menace which is 21 years earlier at this point um and he's obvious like to star wars fans he's so much more than like the guy who played bib for that one scene i didn't even know he did. I, I i've known about it for years and i didn't even know about that until i looked up you know, yeah like the the, he's he's so many more things uh, he's a sound designer for Skywalker Ranch, uh, or for Skywalker Sound, uh, but he's also General Grievous in both Re- uh, Revenge of the Sith and Clone Wars, as well as all of the battle droids in Clone Wars and Rebels and Resistance. So he is he is like a Star Wars staple, and it's always cool to see like those kind of guys show up in these physical roles. Um, so for the the summary, uh, we open with the the Grogu rescue force kidnapping Doctor Pershing. Uh, then they go and recruit Bo-Katan and company to help take down Gideon. Uh, they board Gideon's cruiser and kill pretty much everybody. Uh, Mando delivers his promised uh, whooping on Gideon and rescues little little cuffed Grogu. Uh, however, the dark troopers are activated and they trap everybody in the bridge. Basically, every, everybody's caught up waiting for their inevitable destruction, but then... Uh, an X-Wing shows up and this mysterious hooded figure wrecks every every dark trooper in the vicinity. Uh, and it, of course, is Luke Skywalker. Um, he ends up taking Grogu to, uh, to train him. And <laughs> it is an incredibly emotional scene. And then the, among that, there's conversations about the Darksaber, uh, which I am sure we're going to get to. Uh, however, we end with this this very emotional moment of Grogu being taken away to be trained and and father without his son. 
Um, yeah, not a lot happens in this episode. It's pretty uneventful. Not terribly important to Star Wars, uh, but I guess there's a couple things to talk about. <laughs> um, yeah, Peyton Reed's back, and like if if it weren't for fa- the existence of Rick Famuyiwa, I would say he was by far Peyton Reed was by far my favorite director for this show. I raved so much about his work in The Passenger, and I, everything I said there applies. Plus, like a hundred percent of other just amazing things he does here. Yeah, so. Where, where do you even start with this one? I guess I'll just go uh, go uh, chronologically through it. We open with it, you know, them uh, kidnapping Doctor Pershing, uh, and we meet yet another uh, Imperial Zealot. And I figure at this point, like if you're still hanging around the Empire and fighting for them, you're probably a crazy pr- Zealot like this pilot, or like a Valen Hess. Um, and it was Tony. You know, I was on the Death Star. Which one? Which is that's actually actually a good reading from Gina Carano. I think the probably the only one in the series, but uh, <laughs> she knocks that line out of the park. Um, but the, the the Imperial Zealots are all of them just, just to a man, just freaking creepy. Uh, and I was very happy to see him get shot in the face. <laughs> Feels good. Let me go meet up with Bo-Katan. Uh, and it's a really simple shot, but uh, the, the the panning shot over the planet as Slave One flies over is just mm. gorgeous. Super cool. I'm just Peyton Reed and shooting ships flying in atmosphere. It goes really well together. Then we get, you know, this the conversation of trying to recruit uh, Bo-Katan uh, onto the mission. She's pretty hot. They're really hostile to Boba Fett. I, 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 I kind of wonder, is, is it like, they do they resent... Django for selling out Mandalorian genetic superiority as clones, you know, as, as you know, common warriors. Like, is that why they hate him so much? Like, there, there's definitely well, the some is, kind of beef a, happening. He's not Mandalorian. Yeah, which yeah, okay, yeah, which, which that doesn't line up. In which case, why are they so mad about it? Well, I I, I wonder if it's. I think what I kind of surmised was like he was a foundling, but they ne- like they didn't adhere to the Mandalorian creed yet kept like the Beskar. And so it's like they they tried to carry the allure of Mandalorian culture without submitting to it in any way. And, but in which and case wouldn't they wouldn't they have nothing but scorn for for uh Din Djarin? Like he's not a true Mandalorian either. I, I feel like for him it's more there's more pity like he he's grown up, you know, she's you know, with with the line like, oh he's a he's a child of the watch. Like it, it feels like there's an awareness that like these guys are brainwashed. You know, these they they aren't even they don't even understand. Like they think that this is what all Mandalorians are supposed to be. You know, he says to her, "You're not a real Mandalorian." So I think there's an understanding. They they probably come across people like him before, and it's like this this poor guy has just had this drilled into him since he was a kid, and he doesn't know any better. Whereas you know, Boba and Jango are more than familiar with true Mandalorian culture and true Mandalorian codes. And even with all of this revelation of, of Mandalorian culture and honor, even in light of all of that, it's still like, I'll take the armor, <laughs> I'll, you know, whatever to everything else. Huh. Yeah. But like, you like, is the line, you know, you're a disgrace to that armor. This armor belonged to my father. Don't you mean your donor? I've heard your <laughs> voice thousands of times. Um, let me go to the uh, 
we attack uh, Vietnam's light cruiser. Um, the uh, Tie Fighter launch tube was really cool. Like, I, I was that something they created for this episode, or if you go and read some, uh, I don't like some, uh, you know, ex- ex- Star Wars ship encyclopedia. Is that in there? I don't know, but either way, yeah, I don't think I've ever noticed it because I had the reaction watching this like it was the first time I saw it. I'm like, oh, how cool! What a what a cool little little design choice i love the flying down there or like having them on the assembly thing or not these but like on the line that just pulls them out in front of it it, it looks very cool mm-hmm. and, I, and i think this is the first time we've seen it in a visual media at least and, and, and just the importance of a good director in action like th- we talked about in the siege and in the heiress how the a lot of the action is just mandalorians running through corridors or you know people it's just people running through corridors shooting stormtroopers and that's what a lot a lot of the action in this episode is but Reed just brings so much more creativity to it like it it never feels like half as stale as it did in the previous episodes like he's always just shooting it and like just shooting it in a different way having you know characters you know use a lot more strategy like he's constantly switching it up or things like when they're um they're on the platform on the walkway and the Mandalorians kind of swoop up from the side to shoot everyone. Like every time we have another action beat, he changes it and shoots it in a little different way. and does something a little creative, like to make it more interesting than just you know, people riding down a hallway, shooting stormtroopers. Yeah. There's, there's all of these different moments where like, ah, see, that's, that's what I was wanting. I was, it wasn't like a fourth frame of, or a, a fourth little beat of, staring at people shoot towards the camera it was like it was this whatever like whether it's this beat or that beat here that reed has it's like oh, these are these are cool things that kind of differentiate all the moments from each other and we meet the, oh we, we've met the dark troopers but here we realize just how terrifying they are uh with that the fight between mando and just the one guy just the way reed makes these things so scary um, and there's just so many touches. It's the sound design, the, the just the the sound of the mechanics is so good. Um, Agorinson's uh, techno dark trooper theme is awesome. Um, and with the way they move, it's so wrong and inhuman. It's, it's just perfectly mechanical. Every motion is done with perfect precision. And also, I love how they're kind of slow, but it's just this kind of inexorable motion. Like, they take these slow steps, but they're they're gonna get to you and they're gonna kill you, like no matter how long it takes. Um, and just the way they like when they're punching, <laughs> whether they're punching glass or door or Mando's head into a wall, it's this perfect motion. Like it's like a piston in a factory. It, it's just this this perfectly controlled motion. There's no no expended energy outside of just slamming, pulling it back, slamming it again. And everything is like, it's the timing between each blow is perfect. I don't know if they were trying to make it look stop motion, but it kind of does. It reminded me of the Terminator in the end of the first film where it was stop motion, but in a good way. Yeah, I definitely felt that. Just all those things add up to make just a really scary villain that feels truly unstoppable. Because Mando, he goes at it and... Like, we've seen him tear apart so many people before, but he's all but helpless in, in front of this thing. And he goes through his flamethrower, you know, he's out whistling birds, or, and nothing does, nothing touches it until he pulls out his Beskar spear. And, like, 
it's such a painful, brutal fight, and you realize, oh, that was just one of them, and there are 30 more in that room. We're definitely all dead if they get out. I'm just setting up the stakes in the front end to when they come around for the back in the back end of the episode. You really believe our characters are doomed. Yeah, you know, we talked about the great tension building in the previous episode, and that's definitely here, especially with these these dark troopers. You know, we, you know, he's running, he's running to the door, and we know that they're charging up, and the door closes, and they're just like, are you saying those perfectly timed punches where it's just these piston arms and stuff, and the the music as it builds, the lighting of the scene, the camera angles, like the slow movement of it, it's just, it's this constant build before we even see them in action like before we get to that fight i'm already sold on the danger that these things pose you know like that this this is these aren't it's it's not like battle droids to super battle droids these things are gonna like absolutely destroy you and then we do get that awesome fight you know i'm thinking about like his his fight with the droids out in the the prisoner in in season one where it's like it's it's this hallway fight with these like kind of beefier droids, but he's still able to just take them out. And now he's just getting tossed around and having his com- just he's he's destroyed by this thing almost. So it, this this fight is it feels serious and brutal and and kind of like what you said like it 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 mimics Terminator in the right kind of ways where like it's it's both action but like low key horror as well where you're really you're not just scared that the thing is going to kill you, but you're also scared of the thing itself. Um, just really, really cool stuff to me. Yeah. Then uh, Mando goes and fights uh, Gideon. And again, it's a really cool action scene. Uh, like comparing this to the... Kicking the, the spear. <laughs> yeah. Comparing this to the fight between Elsbeth and Ahsoka, just there's no comparison. This is so much better done. Like the moves are more creative. The camera work is like complementing every blow. They'll go through various mo- several motions before we cut. Um, yeah, and he kicks the spear. That's that that move is so freaking cool. I love how the uh, the um the lightsaber like heats up the the spear the whenever it's in contact. Just like we see like the various fighting styles at work, where Gideon like he's not a great fighter, but he just comes at you with this insane ferocity and violence just he's trying to beat him down by just hitting him as many times as possible but before the fight even that Giancarlo Esposito when he's just doing his evil monologuing and having so much fun threatening a child with a with the dark saber it's weird like he's he's so beloved but like man we we need him in more of the things we just i he needs to be in everything because when he gets these parts, he just kills it. <laughs> and he continues the uh, the monologuing when uh, Mando brings him onto the bridge, and we learn this BS rule that each successive wielder of the dark saber has to win in combat. I'll talk about that later. But I love how it's it's a Gideon. He's like gleefully giggling as he's expositing all the rules, kind of like standing in between Mando and Bo-Katan, like, you gotta fight, right? You gotta fight now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's just, he's having so much fun. It's great to watch. But speaking of the dark saber, saber lore, I'm just calling absolute BS on all of it. Like we've seen that dark saber change hand as a gift multiple times. 
throughout throughout Rebels, um, and no one blinked an eye. So to now all of a sudden say, like, oh, you have to win in combat or else you can't wield it is like it, it it really irritates me, these kind of lore changes, because like Filoni's on the show and like all Favreau has to do is watch, you know, watch the shows he's referencing. He wants to bring in the Darksaber, then learn about it. Yeah, maybe, maybe like the, the the stupid helmet thing, it'll be corrected later on or it'll be explained. But right now, it just feels like cheap, contrived drama at the expense of established lore. Yeah, I feel like you probably know this about me more than anybody else, but I, like I'm a continuity is a big deal to me. Like I hate discontinuity between whether it's within a show or across multiple shows and media. So like I just I need to believe that the thing that I watched before this takes place in the same world that what I'm watching now. Like it's not shot, but like there's there are events that we know happen between that thing and the thing I'm watching. Like these are, this is the same world. It's all the same world and the same rules. And I'm revisiting the same world with all of these new movies and shows. And whenever something happens in one of these that just completely contradicts the thing that I just watched, it really, really bothers me. And, and this is a really bad offender to me because of what you said, where it's, it's strike one is, it is just contrived drama. And it feels as like they're maybe they can get real like they can get meaningful drama from it going forward, but like you've got this character Bo Katan who's like you know just so dismissive of the children of the watch you know like oh the, the stupid helmet rule how silly and dogmatic and arbitrary and blah blah blah, and now it's like. Well, uh, actually, I can't just take that from you because of the silly, dogmatic, arbitrary rule. It's in and of itself. It's like I don't, I don't. This isn't real character drama. I don't, I don't care about this. It's just, it's a rule that you came up with on the spot so that this can't be as easy as it should be. And then on top of that, it's like, listen, I saw Sabine give this to Bo. Like I, I watched it happen. You know, like whenever you're you're trying to be like, here's this dramatic thing for but like, no, you you spent this season and presumably like so much of your time prior to season two starting just after Gideon and after this dark saber because it is yours and it's your rightful thing. And now you can't take it because it can't be given to you. Like the only reason it was ever yours in the first place you know, the only reason you owned it and now you're just viciously trying to get it back because it was yours. It was yours because of the same scenario, because somebody gave it to you. Like, it's ah, it just, it's so frustrating. And yet, like, they, they did address the helmet thing in a way. I'm not going to say I don't think that's possible in this instance, but I feel like I, when I, with the helmet thing, I kind of, like the answer that we all hoped we were going to get was, well, maybe it's just kind of a weird fanatical sect. Like there was, if they are going to fix it, there is an Occam, Occam's razor kind of fix of like, I can imagine how they would. Whether they will, I don't know, but I can imagine it. Here, I don't know. Like, I just, I don't know what kind of stuff they'll have to pull out of thin air to be like, well, there's a reason why these two scenarios aren't the same. I guess they could say like, the reason her first rebellion failed was because she didn't win the Darksaber rightfully. But in that case, like, wouldn't somebody have known? Because 
you have uh, Fen Rao there, you have Sabine there, you have Sabine's mother, you have bo like all these different true Mandalorians from various families all around, standing around seem totally cool with it. So who are the Mandalorians who don't like it? And, and the thing is, like, even if, like, I feel like if that is going to be the reason given, it's going to be weird going back to that scene in Rebels and not have her at least bring it up. Like, not be some sort of, like, moment for her as a character where, like, where I know that we're not supposed to do this, but for the better of Mandalore, I will, blah, blah, like, the, even, even if she was going to contradict the rule by accepting it, like, putting, putting aside the fact that all of these people that you listed were there, and knowing some of them absolutely would have raised that objection, but even, like, with that aside, like, she would have said something, she would have been, she, she would have vocalized, like, I'm not supposed to do this, but I must, but we don't even get that. Like, I don't know. I don't I don't see how I'm going to be able to revisit that scene with this and not be like, ah, these things do not line up. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Uh, then we get oh, a little guy named Luke Skywalker shows up. Uh, and this has been the cause of a lot of controversy. Actually, I'll talk, I'll talk about the controversy later. Right now, I just want to talk about the actual scene itself. Um, we have the dark troopers, you know, trap them in the bridge. And the, the way that sequence is edited is brilliant. It's a real Toy Story 3 moment. We all know yeah. we're about to die. The way, like, you know, it'll be in the middle of a dialogue scene between the characters, but he'll just insert a shot of the, the fists slamming into the door, then cut back to, the, like, every couple shots and, and seconds is punctuated by a fist slamming against the door. It's like, it reminds me of, like, like you know, drums, drums in the deep. Like, <laughs> uh, it's... The do the sense of doom, you know that Mr. Anderson is the sound of inevitability, like it's it's coming for us. The way the, that sequence is just brilliantly put together, just to give us that feeling that they need to be saved. And oh look, someone shows up to save them. Uh, and again, more just brilliant editing. The way Reed puts the sequence together, you know she says you know it's one X wing, and then we cut to Baby Yoda and his ears perk up, and then the punching stops. All the dark troopers turn around. The lo- you know the lone cloaked figure marches across the security feed. Then we get like blurry static footage of the lightsaber, and he's like, "You can't really see it." Um, then Bo-Katan's like a Jedi in hushed tones. Gideon sh- shudders in terror. Then we cut to the lightsaber, you know, uh, to the shot of the lightsaber moving on screen as Luke comes in. It's like it's just a perfect. Again, this is the kind of introduction I was talking about. They should have had for Ahsoka. Yeah. It's like you could have just started with that shot of the hand and the lightsaber coming to screen and, and Luke walking across. But no, you built up to it just piece by piece by piece, getting us excited and into it till the, you know we can't even contain it in that final moment where it's released and awesome action. Like that's what makes filmmaking filmmaking. You know, just, that's that's it's cinema essentially. Like sure, it's, I don't care. It's on TV. It's it's cinema. Suck it, Scorsese. I don't care. <laughs> Like it's a, you're using all the tools available, actors, you know, editing, effects, cinematography to, to give us a glorious reveal. And just the way the whole sequence is put together, we're we're constantly cutting back to the security feed. It's it's essentially it's mythologizing the Jedi in the eyes of our characters. Like they've only they've only heard the stories, and now like they're watching in awe through screens. Like it's. He's not just giving us a cool sequence of Luke killing things, which it is, but it's also it's building the mythology of what the Jedi are to the galaxy. 
at large, which is, you know, is like powerful Star Wars lore is being built here alongside cool fan service. Yeah. Unfortunately, I I had it spoiled ahead of time because I wasn't able oh, to watch man. it until after work. So I knew it was Luke. But what's amazing is like that scene works so well, even without it, because I I, I, mean, was, you, I read something. You know it's of, Luke the moment you hear Alone X-Wing. So it's not really a huge reveal. Yeah. But it's crazy. So the, the what I had is I, I was just I was scrolling through Facebook and I saw the part where Luke like opened the the door or whatever. Like I, I read Luke and I was like, dang it. It's probably the Jedi. Like, yeah, I, I think that's what it is. And then we got close to the moment. I'm like, I don't know, man, Luke, that's a big character. Like, is it really going to be him? And then like they said, what's, what's amazing is like all of that almost like disappeared as the scene started. And they're like, it, it's a lone X-Wing. And you see it like, on the on the camp the the footage it comes into the hangar and lands and I'm like I mean it surely it couldn't be like all of a sudden like even though I knew that it was I became like like I couldn't believe that's actually what was going on and it landed I'm like what no way and then the hood is walking through I'm like is it and then whenever that green saber is on screen I'm just like freaking out so excited like this is incredible and like the, the the fights themselves are awesome it's it's not just like this lame walking through it's like him the you know going through him getting his own little elevator scene is incredible and it's it's not like the anime kind of fan servicey jet i think it's like it it's all within like the the kind of established canon of, of how powerful jedi are and how they move and how they fight but it is like this extravagant loud awesome kind of action it's i don't know it's everything that that kind of jedi tearing up droid scene should be it's just oh so cool yeah and there right when it happened <laughs> there were like two extreme reactions one side was all the fandom has be like, yeah, that's our Luke. That's what Luke should have been. Not that what Ruin Johnson did in The Last Jedi. This is real Luke Skywalker. And then you had like the other side of like some more ex the extreme uh, uh, Last Jedi fans were like, oh, this is just stupid fan service. It's you know they're they're they're, they're pandering to the people who hated the Last Jedi. They're they're they're, they're trying to they're trying to you know contradict what Ryan Johnson was doing. They're they're making Luke just this mindless warrior killing everyone for no reason. It's so, like you had both sides, like one person like attacking the episode, one, one side loving it, and me. I'm like, and for me, uh, but and personally, I I think both sides are kind of equally wrong. So like one, like I want to address the fan service, like the the critique that it's just mindless fan service, that you know Star Wars has been reduced. There's no more story anymore. It's just like what will fans like? Like look at this season. They brought in Ahsoka, Boba Fett, Bo-Katan, Luke Skywalker. It's all just references. Not there's no drama. I will allow Boba Fett. I don't think Boba Fett needs to be in this show, but he's really cool, so I'll allow it. But as far as like the other characters, Bo-Katan, she's the leader of the you know the free people of Mandalore, and. This show is called The Mandalorian. And your show is called The Mandalorian. And, you know, <laughs> exactly. like, him running into her makes total sense because he's searching for Mandalorians. So, like, that makes sense story-wise. Um, and, and it looks like the story going forward is going to be about retaking Mandalore. It's about Mandalorians. Deal with it. Um, Ahsoka, we're looking for Jedi. 
she's like how many jedi are there out there like so bringing her in makes sense they but also they use her story-wise the scene where she communes with baby yoda and she and she like she really strength strengthens the bond between them and 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 uh like it, it shows shows up mando how to talk to baby yoda how to be a better dad essentially like there's a lot of character stuff happening there um and then luke skywalker okay listen to this at the end of uh so at the beginning this show this season opens up with mando saying i'm trying to find some jedi every episode he goes to a different place saying i'm trying to find some jedi to train grogu he keeps doing this that the whole season is so at the end of the season if a jedi shows up to train grogu that's not cheap fan service. That's called storytelling. Like, it's, it's, this is what we've been building to, a Jedi to train Grogu. And so, like, you could say, oh, it doesn't have to be Luke. Fine, but look at Star Wars canon. How many, the, the, the amount of known Jedi in the entire galaxy at this point, you could probably count on both your hands. Like, there's not a lot of options. And who do we know at this point in Star Wars canon was start was starting a jedi school to train younglings like i i i understand like the knee-jerk reaction whenever you see the fandom and is rejoicing you want to stomp on it and say it's bad but this is where the show is going and it makes perfect sense within the lore luke skywalker is looking for students so yeah jedi showed up to train grogu deal with it yeah i mean i have very little to add to that because i think that's all the you know whenever with all of the last jedi criticisms and stuff I there's something I found like a lot of like camaraderie with people defending it and being like oh these people just don't know these critics just don't know how to like analyze a movie you don't you're talking about this movie like it's saying things it's not saying like learn how to learn how to read a cinematic text like there's so many <laughs> things that you're just missing you're getting so wrong and so like it was it was like this brotherhood and being like, yes, we like we understand this, and there's all of these stupid complaints, and this is enjoy like it's it's fun batting down these silly petty people who only want fan service, and then this happened, and people called it just fan service, and there's just a f- unnecessary blah blah blah. I'm like, wait, do you know <laughs> how to like interpret something like? They're not even interpret something, but just like read where a story is naturally headed. Because I mean, everything that you said is 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 right. Like this opened up with, I I need to find where the Jedi are. Like I need somebody to train him. So we know that we have to end on a Jedi. And like you said, not only is the the pool of living Jedi pretty pretty limited right now, but. We have a jet. What was the at this point the last thing we had seen from Luke outside of his little you know like we we get a part of his part of his story in Battlefront too, um, but outside of like the last live action thing we've seen with him and you have Yoda telling him you know pass on what you have learned you know and so we know that. The Jedi are something that are like they are meant to live on. Luke is meant to reestablish it. And then going forward with the sequels, we know he did. We know he created a school. We know he taught people. And it wasn't just like way later on either, like whenever Kylo was was or Ben was older, 
we know he he taught relatively quickly after that. He started training Leia. And so at this particular point in time, we know we're looking for a Jedi to train somebody. We know there's a Jedi actively trying to train new Jedi. It is the logical reason. It is the natural organic reveal with everything that's here. And you're you're not proving yourself to be some sort of like real cinephile or real like I care about the arts. I don't want to be well. No, you're you're shallow. You're trying to sound like that. You're trying to sound like you really care about real stories, and you're not like like. But no, you you're just proving that you can't read a story right because this is what was supposed to happen. Every everything here is what should have happened. Ugh. And then, like. This, you know, the com the complaint goes even beyond just the fact that it's Luke. But like what you said, you, these people be like the the people who complain about the Last Jedi are you know, like this is my Luke, this is what the real Luke does, and then you had the other people. It, it was weird that they were like, oh, he's just a killing machine, and I'm like, yeah, these are droids. Like, get off your <laughs> high horse. That that you're just sounding incredibly silly. Um, I mean, what but, does a Jedi do better than killing droids? Like that's exactly. Uh, and so it's, but it's this whole, like, of course they had to give the fans their real Luke. This is like, as if this is some sort of insult again, like I, I know that we all like we're arm and arm with an arm defending the last Jedi, but were you paying attention to what Luke was saying? The entire reason for his fall from grace was because he bought into his own very real legend. He was a, he became a truly legendary figure in the galaxy. Like, they are in awe of him in this episode. And that's what's described. It's, he is this, he is the Luke Skywalker Jedi Master, a legend. I had this reputation. This episode, I wouldn't say it's the unnecessary stepping stone because The Last Jedi absolutely works without this. But if we were to see him between Return of the Jedi and The Last Jedi, this has to be it. This is the only option. We have to see him being a legend. And he is. And so whenever I'm bin like binging Star Wars and I'm going from Return of the Jedi to The Mandalorian to The Last Jedi, like these are all sequential steps that make sense with each other. Yeah, like remember in The Last Jedi where just the very image of Luke Skywalker brings an entire army to a screeching halt. Where did that like? Where did that fear come from? This is why. Yeah, like in order for Luke to be a fallen legend, he says, "I was a legend." He has to be legendary at some point in his life, and it, it, like this phase in his life has to exist in order for canon to function. So, believe me, I get the concern and the fear of pandering and fan service, and I have that concern, like like with Boba Fett. Like, I I I don't love everything they do with him but you have to like you can you, you can call out the silly fan service but you have to you can't just apply a blanket just this blanket statement of cheap fan service on everything that fans might like <laughs> because sometimes what a fan wants is good storytelling and like a payoff just like paying off what has been set up isn't fan service it's, it's storytelling mm, agreed yeah that is all i have to say about that <laughs> now, okay, now I have now uh, comes to a big critique of this episode. I love everything about this episode. Oh, we didn't. One thing we didn't mention is the music that played over the Luke reveal is so freaking good. Like, 
I, it would have been awesome if they played like the force theme there, but I love the music they did choose. It's like this really quiet, awe-inspiring thing. I love how restrained it was. Yeah. It really is. Like, it's this cool, there's such an air of mystery to it. Mm-hmm. Building up the legend of the Jedi. Uh, then we see <laughs> Luke's face. And uh, as best I can tell, this isn't de-aging. I think this is just a CGI model in the in the vein of Tarkin and Princess Leia and Rogue One. But it's terrible <laughs> in this case. Um, like, I can defend Tarkin in... Like, I, I can tell he's in Rogue One. I can tell he's a CGI, but I, but I, can, I can squint and buy it. I don't know what they were thinking here. This is an abomination. Um, it's, and like every time I go back, it gets worse. Um, like when I look, the closer I look, the worse it gets. It's, it's just this dead CGI face, but also the face doesn't even entirely fit onto the head. There's like this shadowy ring around it. The weird edges. It's weird, weird edges. And there's no expression. His lips barely move when he speaks and they don't match the dialogue there's no life in his eyes it's it's a dead cgi model that stole luke skywalker's face and i don't like it um and on top of that just being a terrible terrible effect there the filmmakers are terrified of it um like look think back to the way gareth edwards shot tarkin in rogue one like, even with the problems with the effect, he shot that character like it was anyone else. Like, the camera's moving, there's close-ups. He's so alive. He interacts with the environment. Yeah. Here, Luke just stands perfectly still. And he just, it's like a statue. And, like, when he speaks, his head barely moves. Like, there's no expression. Like, he doesn't interact with the scene like a living human being. And so, like, it's like, they don't even get the advantage of, like, it could have been like, oh, it's a bad effect, but at least we got Luke and he interacted. He acted like Luke. He doesn't even act like a person. This this thing is not alive. He's not interacting. He doesn't like. He walked into this crazy scene. Does he have no questions about what just happened? Whose ship is this? Like, he just doesn't act like a person. He, he just says as few lines as possible. The shots are all really static from one direction. Like they shoot it like they they know it's a bad effect and they're terrified of it. But they had to do it, so like it's it's there's no confidence in the filmmaking. The effect is terrible. The just the the lines are not natural. It's a powerful scene because you know Mando takes off his helmet helmet, and we have that amazing face to face scene with Grogu, and I'm crying at that. <laughs> they cut back to Luke, and I'm like, oh no, get it, get it off the screen. It's a weird scene. It's <laughs> such a freaking weird scene. I don't know what they were thinking. Sebastian Stan was right across the hall at Marvel. Why didn't you bring him over or anyone? Like, just get any living, breathing human actor. I don't care. I just, it's, I know a lot of people don't mind it, but it, 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 it drives me freaking nuts. Yeah. I'm, I'm surprised about how many people were just able to accept it. And like, I, I don't begrudge them. I wish that that was me, but boy, it's, you know, so I'm watching it and I'm so high off of this scene. And then he takes the hood off and it was almost like this just, my stomach dropped like it felt like this just this gut punch because I, I was so ready to love all of this I'm like 
it was like just in the stage of denial like I, no it's not as bad as i think it is it's it's a weird it was a weird shot and i just like we're halfway through the scene and i'm still like well surely it's going to be another shot it's like there's this isn't going to be like this the whole time and it just beginning to end it's such a bad effect the texture on the skin is bad like it feels so like just really flat what it felt like to me was even though like i guess it really was like a fully cgi face what it it just it felt like you just you you took like you you just copied and pasted this flat image of his face and then yeah it's it's like, so 2d looking yeah like it, it feels like a 2d image pasted and mapped onto a 3d figure like it really does not feel like there is depth to the the features or anything like it, it feels flat it like i mean it feels like a texture itself like it it feels like it's meant to create the illusion of depth but like it, it is just it's it's kind of there pasted onto something it's just and then like the lighting is really bad because like everything obviously it's a set so everything is lit properly but his face just kind of has that cgi glow and then there's this weird the blurred edges of of the features and stuff i oh man i just it's bad the the saving grace and, and like you said like he's just it goes beyond the, the bad effect and he, he's not walking around he's not talking like a person he's just he's this like rant he's, he's just this figure spouting short lines it's it's not a, a person the one saving grace is i think the voice is spot on and yeah it's nice it's it it was weird you know because i've watched the original trilogy so many times and i know all of his lines and stuff it's weird hearing like 30 year old mark hamill voice with new lines even though they're not great lines it was kind of like because like i said i i don't like recasting i don't like discontinuity and so to be like oh wait i if you're telling me this is what he sounds like five years after yeah that's this is exactly what he sounds like so it was cool to be able to be like oh yeah it's it it sounds like mark hamill because it is like i don't know how he's doing what he's doing but it's it was great to have the voice just be so perfect yeah and i, I don't think it's like oh the cgi artists were bad at their job like I, I, my guess is it was just they didn't have enough time, and they had a TV budget trying to do the most difficult CGI effect known to man, which is creating the human face, and it's been done well like once, and like, like even the films that where it's done well, usually they'll have shots that don't look good. Um, it, it felt like they're, they're they're just reaching so far beyond their grasp, um, yeah. and it, <laughs> it's just a bad idea. Just recast. I'll live with it. But again, all the fans thought it was awesome, so what do I know? Oh, yeah, but we should probably talk about Pedro Pascal's sad face because it's really sad. It made me cry. Oh, brown eyes. Oh, the scene between him and Baby Yoda just looking into their eyes. It's like the fact that they can bring me from the the most I have ever been disconnected from anything I've ever watched looking at Luke's face to like legitimately tearing up in a matter of seconds because... Pascal is so, you know, perfect, and they've so beautifully built up the relationship between this father and son figure. You know, this, this, <laughs> the, this dude with a helmet, helmet on the whole time, and his puppet son, and I'm crying over it because I'm a sap, and it's amazing. Good stuff. Uh, yeah, and that's the season. He's taken Baby Yoda, and 
I, I'm shocked that this series had the guts to go there because Baby Yoda has without a doubt been like the stand the you know the the breakout figure from this show, and like these the show's mascot and. There is not a single soul on this planet who doesn't love Baby Yoda. Like you, they, maybe they don't even like Star Wars, but they still love Baby Yoda. Um, and to take him out of the show, like what is this show without Baby Yoda? Maybe he's the believer, in which case, bring it on. Uh, but even that, you know, he wasn't he wasn't present, but it was all about getting back Baby Yoda, and and the emotion and character arcs was was coming off of that. So like, it'll be. Like I, I applaud the fact that they're not relying on that character. They're gonna try and make a show without him, without you know, without you know, the crutch of the adorable thing. But I, I don't envy that task. Yeah, but I'm looking forward to it. I'm very excited to see what they could potentially do from this point. Mm-hmm. And a cool touch I liked is that there's no concept art over the credits, and it's, it's not the, the standard Mando theme. Uh, this is a trick that they've pulled on a. Uh, I, maybe a lot of TV shows do it, but I haven't noticed. The only shows that I've noticed do it were, were Clone Wars and Rebels, uh, like in the wrong the wrong Jedi episode where Ahsoka leaves the Order, or Jedi Knight where bleep happens to bleep. Um, like they they don't have the tr- standard credits music. They have this like really sad, somber, slow music kind of. I, and I like when they do that. Like they they we just had a really traumatic experience. They're gonna allow us to kind of rest and heal over the credits. Yeah, it's. You feel like you really watch something special. Yeah. Ah, uh, then we get a post-credit scene with a teaser for a new show called The Book of Boba Fett. Um. Okay, that's happening. Uh, Bib Fortuna is there, and he's like super, super gross and fat with these horrible fingernails. But he dies fast, so it's okay. Uh, but yeah, I guess Boba Fett and uh, Fennec Shand are gonna go and be mobsters on Tatooine. Um. Sure. Like. Honestly, I, I, this is probably one of the shows I'm least like automatically interested in. Like not like not that I'm like I don't want it, but that doesn't on its face doesn't sound terribly compelling to me. However, Robert Rodriguez is involved, so even if it's pretty shallow on the story level, it's at least going to be fun. So there's that. And Tamora Morrison is great, so it'll be fun. Like it's, it'll be fun. That's what's coming up next. Um, but on on the surface, the idea of Boba Fett playing mobster, I don't know. At least at least from the team of Favreau doesn't thrill me on the surface. What are your thoughts? So I've talked a lot about how you know I'm I'm still a fan, so I still like these things. This is the show where I'm most worried that my complaints will really come to fruition. But I think the thing that has me optimistic is that it's going to be happening while we're still getting like the acolyte and ahsoka you know these other shows that sound like they're going to be going for different things and are going to be more like are more ambitious with what they're doing and really that's i think is i've that's always what i've wanted in my perfect world i'm you know in between ryan johnson's star wars trilogy i'm watching you know boba fett and mandalorian like i I want it all. I want the stuff that's just easy. You know what I want, so give me what I want. And I want the, ooh, I've never thought about it like this. This is kind of, you know, really interesting takes on things. Like, so if if among all of the shows we get that variety, then I'll, yeah, I'll tune in every Friday to watch Boba shoot some guys. And I think th- this season gave a, lo- a lo- much better balance between the fun fan service, cool Star Wars action figure stuff and the emotional character stuff, which I felt was pretty lacking 
there were a couple, you know, there were a couple episodes and moments in the first season, but this one I felt alongside just the fun stuff. There was a lot of good character stuff, you know, be it the Jedi, the believer or, you know, the rescue. Like there, I, I did not, ne I never in a million years would have thought the show would have made me cry. Um, and it did that. And, you know, and, you know, it had a really fast, you know, great, fascinating conversations with, with Bill Burr or you know, cool mystical stuff with the Soka. Like it, it, it's getting there. It's, it's finding it's some of its dramatic footing, like not nothing terribly deep or anything, but maybe, maybe I'm just so starved <laughs> from last season. But uh, it does feel like it, it's being a bit more dramatically ambitious. And you have all the the promises of, you know, Thrawn and Bo-Katan going off to save Mandalore. Like, it, it feels like they're, they're they're starting to double down into a story. So, uh, James, how would you rank uh, season two of these eight episodes? Uh, I'm putting that together right now because I forgot to, but I'm almost done. <laughs> okay, in which case, I'll go first. Um, uh, so my ranking for season two is one, the believer, two, the passenger, three, the rescue, four, the marshal, five, the Jedi, six, the tragedy, seven, the heiress, and eight, the siege. Right, so, and uh, how did you rank these eight episodes, James? So I ranked them... Um... I did number eight, the siege, uh, number seven, the tragedy, number six, the heiress, number five, the Jedi, number four, the marshal, number three, the rescue, number two, the passenger, and then definitely the believer as my number one. I think that's the same as mine, just like one or one different. Was the tragedy is the tragedy and the heiress switched out? The tragedy, yeah, I think the tragedy and the heiress we have uh, changed, but outside of that, it's the same. All right, uh, so that was our much longer episode on the second half of season two of The Mandalorian. I hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, again, I'd like to ask you to please uh, take a moment to give us a rating review on iTunes. Give us a like on Facebook at Franchise Fatigue Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram as at Franchised Pod. And you can go to our website, uh, FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com, to find all our other episodes. Also, check out the Outer Rim YouTube channel, where uh, we'll be putting out weekly reviews for the Bad Batch episodes as they air. I'll be running those. Uh, James is going to show up on a couple of them, along with various other uh, people from our Outer Rim team. Uh, those are a lot of fun. Uh, that is at the, the Outer Rim, a Star Wars channel. Those will be going as long as the series runs. And uh, James, where can people follow you? You can find me over on Letterboxd. I am there as JL Hamry. It's JL H A M R I. And at the aforementioned The Outer Room of Star Wars group, uh, where you and I and some other friends are admins at. I am also on Letterboxd, and there's Gabriel Green. And you can follow me on Instagram as Gabe the Great Green. So next week is going to be WandaVision. Yeah, so that's what's up next over to Marvel. And I'm definitely looking forward to WandaVision. I, I enjoyed that show a lot. Yeah, I'm excited about it. So until next episode, we will see you in the miniseries. Does that mean I can go? Because I will. <laughs> <laughs>